0: Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Busky. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check
1: Radio.
2: You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster, Peter Williams.
1: Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was
2: a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker.
1: Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch.
2: The man who cares so much, and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain, and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio, at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived.
3: This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio
4: welcome to counterculture on reality check radio i'm your host marie busky and this is the show where we'll examine issues and stories in the wider work world that have been impacted by critical social justice on today's show writer presenter social commentator and landlady of the katie's arms katie hopkins joins me from the uk we'll talk live laugh love speakeasies and the craziness that's in britain today In the second hour, Ian Cummings joins me for a chat about Christianity's place in an increasingly secular world, this unconventional journey to Christianity and the role of faith versus the state. Marty Gibson will be back and will join me for Media Matters, where we put a spotlight on the stories of the week that have caught our eye. And then we'll round all things off with the woke word of the week. This is where I have a look at the vocabulary, the manipulation of language by those in critical social justice, and give you the actual definitions to words and phrases tossed around in everyday vernacular.
5: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR.
0: Two
4: events happened this weekend that for most would seem unrelated, but for me are intrinsically entwined. The first is the passing of Sir Barry Humphreys over the weekend. Barry, in my opinion, was Australia's greatest comedy genius. Whether as himself, on stage, in prose, or as one of the iconic characters, Humphreys was able to articulate the thoughts of a nation, parody its faults, and allow us all just to laugh out loud nothing was off limits. Dame Edna would gatecrash live TV, sit on the laps of celebrities. She wasn't even deterred by the monarchy, who can forget her quipping to Camilla, oh, they found me a better seat, oh, I'm sorry, in the 2013 Royal Variety performance after inserting herself into the royal box. Then there's the cultural attaché Les Patterson, the boorish culmination of the ruling political classes and bureaucrats of the time, who managed to offend everyone in his wake and in doing so created comedy gold but with all the adulation and honors none of these saved humphreys when the mob came for him after comments in 2019 saw him cancelled by the melbourne international comedy festival the very festival he created with fellow comedian peter cook and the event's main prize was sanitized of his name something that haunted him until his dying day yet another victim of that oxymoron that is woke comedy. Only a scant acknowledgement was made of his passing on their social media, and no meaningful tribute was made on the closing day of the festival. Miriam Margulies summed up her disgust best. A lifelong friend of Humphrey's, she said, he was a scurvy and he could often be quite nasty, but he was a genius and you have to accept that. My hero is Charles Dickens, who was a total bastard to his wife. Doesn't mean he wasn't the, one of the greatest writers who ever lived. Then, yesterday, I woke to the breaking news of American broadcaster and writer Tucker Carlson being dumped by Fox. This may not seem significant for most Kiwis, but it should. Fox is an openly partisan network, right leaning, a lone wolf in the legacy media landscape, and Tucker was their highest rating host. His weeknight shows covered topics deemed verboten by other networks, such as questioning COVID measures, including the vaccine, what really happened on January 6th at the Capitol, and the ideologies hidden in the American school system, just to name a few. He went when no other journalist dared to go, asked the questions that everyday Americans asked over coffee and a beer, but never saw asked, except by him, In a -a twice-a-week show, he would have conversations with those who were shaping our culture from the outside in. Often, his guest's only appearance on another legacy channel would be in derision. Tucker took the time to hear their stories. Now he's gone. Or is he? I'll be watching this with great interest with where to for next for Tucker. I see job offers already started rolling in, and with the emergence of strong parallel media platforms such as Blaze, The Daily Wire, Rumble, or you could even go full Rogan on Spotify, time will only tell. What I do know is legacy media, like legacy comedy, have just lost one of the most influential figures, and unlike Sue Barry Humphreys, there's a lot of life left and a hell of a lot more to say in Tucker Carlson. I'd be watching the space.
1: To Barry Jones and to, of course, Celeste Patterson. Well, Those Watsons, weren't they terrific in the mellow tone. Very good indeed. I've got a big subsidy for that Lee Sheila. <laughs> <laughs> I'll flip it to her later. <laughs> <laughs> Viewers, I'm not a show pony. I'm not a show pony. I'm a stayer. I'm a survivor you're a survivor, and old Baz is a survivor. (laughs) And I would like to prevail upon this channel to give me a couple of minutes because I've written a little poem for you. I'm not just talk, I I can have the creative ability myself. (laughs) And I've written this poem, oh, and I'd like, if I may, to read it. Have I your permission, Mr. Producer? No worries. <laughs> 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 well, could we have a bit of mood music in the background, son, eh? No worries? No worries. No worries. No worries. Ode to Parky by Celeste Patterson. <laughs> Cop this. There's a bloke who's keenly watched and widely read, who always hits the nail on the head. In the UK he started his career, now he's hit the jackpot over here. If he gets nervous, well, it's never showed. His face is like a mile of rugged road. His crows feet are the dried up beds of smiles. And his best friends are aware that he's got piles, <laughs> piles. piles of charm, Possess. Possess. and British spunk and phlegm, of TV interviewers, he's the gem. He can interview a Zulu or a Iraqi and make it interesting. His name as Parky. <laughs> this bloke can conjure laughter and applause in the wake of rat bags, puffs, and crashing bores. <laughs> and if he's pushed for spicy dialogue, he'll ask you if you've ever nudged the grog. <clears throat> the TV critics, the TV critics here are chippy guys. They'll try to chop old Parky down to size. A few might say, go back where you come from. We won't be taught charisma by a POM,
3: but he knows
1: the average Aussie journalist is following orders jealous or (laughs) half-pissed. I'll cut that, I'll cut that. (laughs) I keep saying they'll cut it, they won't cut it. He smiles, he does his job, he doesn't care. When you're the ace, where do you go from there? So, whether you be hun, or nip, or darky, <laughs> raise your glass of lager, rum, or sake, <laughs> and drink to my old cobber, dear old parky. <laughs>
5: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah,
0: yeah. Reality Check Radio.
4: You're with Reality Check Radio. My first guest this morning is writer, broadcaster, social and political commentator and landlady of the Katie's Arms, Katie Hopkins. Welcome to Counterculture. Good morning.
6: <laughs> Good morning and thank you so much uh, for having me on and uh, also for mentioning our
4: online pub, the Katie's Arms, that I am the oh. landlady of. I know, I love the Katie's Arms. It's sort of my little bit of, oh, oh, it's so lovely. Because when you do it, by the time I get to watch it the next morning, it's like a little guilty pleasure. It's like, ooh, what have they been up to in the Katie's Arms? It's so funny. It people is- talk a
6: bit that way. So, so, just to explain for people who aren't part of Katie's up when uh, we were all locked down to death, you know, I started the pub where everyone could come together, and it's called the <laughs> Katie's Arms. It's on Instagram live. and people dive on. And really, essentially, as you will know, it's mostly just laughing really at me, me laughing at me or other people laughing at me. And we all sit down like we would in a pub, and we all have a drink together, and we all forget anything about pretending or anything about pretending to be perfect or pretending to have done things the right way. And we just have a giggle. And and you're right. And what so many people are saying is, um, you know, they, they, it's their guilty pleasure because it's a moment of just having a laugh like we used to.
4: Yeah, Kams was one of those wonderful places that just allowed you to say those naughty things that you didn't think you could say out loud, but you could say-
3: Idea.
4: Yeah, it,
6: it's been joyous. Um, and what I love most about it is when I start off and then everyone comes in and says hi, you know, and then it's hi from here, hi from California, hi from uh, South America. And it's so lovely to, to see our network. You know, I imagine it with lights over a world map.
4: We are literally everywhere and it's a glorious thing. It is a glorious thing you'll laugh i thought today i'll do my due diligence because of course i'm appreciating your work from the stuff you've done across lockdown the katie's arms i love just your i've got something to tell the world so i'm gonna go tell them now for five minutes (laughs) and it just makes me smile but i thought i better do but do your due diligence marie i looked at your wikipedia for the first time today oh my lord never look at the wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh it is the funny you I did admit- not realise I was such a monster, did you? Well, you never knew uh, I was such a monster. I literally had to write really? here. You must have a shit kicker of a lawyer that's on retainer the start. <laughs> they they obviously don't allow you to edit this because it's lots no. of fun. Crikey. My favorite part though was getting deported from Australia. <laughs> I thought we so were supposed not- to be importing people there. What what were they doing deporting you?
6: There's some funny things. Like, so, you know, Wikipedia said so when people like, say, Katie Hopkins, and you know, maybe have no idea you know who I am. I'm not that I'm anyone, but just don't know my name. So the first thing people do will be go to Wiki. And of course, if you go to Wikipedia and you read my entry, you're like, holy dooly, I'm taking on literally Satan. This woman is the walking epitome of evil. My Wikipedia entry is about 850 pages long. That's the other thing. It's like an encyclopedia. like I got- know. I, I Who look, are these people? What are they doing? Do? What are they? Why do they not have a hobby? Do they not have a life? I mean, seriously. And then also the different in the rules. Like, if you're someone super famous and powerful and on the left, you can control Wikipedia, and they write nice things. If you're me, they just basically, you know, vomit all, all over your life. But but to your point, yes, I was deported and banned from Australia and fined a thousand dollars for the crime of speaking out against lockdown online. So I was <laughs> deported for speech.
4: You horrid thing. <sighs> but I hate to say it, we probably would have done the same thing to you here. Oh, you would have, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah.
6: New Zealand was dark.
4: Oh, we were very dark. We were very, very dark. When I reflect now, it's funny, the COVID years, I don't know whether you have this in the UK. What I certainly have is, you know, when you reminisce back and you think, oh, we did this, I did this a couple of years ago because I've totally blanked out COVID and all the lockdowns. It's like childbirth. It didn't exist. It didn't happen. It's a mental black hole because it was so horrid. It's... (laughs)
6: It's so true. And no one ever tells you that. No one ever tells you. That's the thing about childbirth is no one is honest with you. I mean, that's what really, it's what really bugged me. You're surrounded by all these like midwife types or these, you're supposed to go to these ridiculous classes where people go, "Ooh, ooh, ooh." you're supposed to breathe a bit. And the reality of it is that, you know, someone takes a sledgehammer to your you know, pelvic region. We don't need to go there, but it's quite different to what you get prepared for. You are not prepared for what's about to come at you
4: right oh no lie. no absolutely not absolutely not and see i'm in the menopause now and they lie about that too just like childbirth <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what and then you think to yourself i should write a book about this but there's a million books about them and they're all lying so i don't, I don't bother no i did have a little chuckle about the fact that you did um get thrown out of you know the west island Australia. so um, So that well, Well, I was
6: I was in Nashville. So I was doing stand up in Nashville when we got the news, or I got the news that Jacinda Ardern had just stepped down. And Mm. I did this little video. We must find it actually. And I it was basically speeded up me running around the hotel corridors in Nashville celebrating (laughs) that uh, Jacinda Ardern was going. And everyone was like, "That's how we all feel. That is exactly how we feel." Yeah, it was so fun.
4: It was, it was crazy. I was actually um, on a cruise, would you believe, on a cruise ship, and it was the first wow. holiday that um, we'd had since COVID had started. So it was just very exciting. And we were sitting, uh, having a bit of lunch with American friends, and we could hear this hopping and hollering out in the corridor. And this was going up to the Pacific Islands, So there was a good number of Kiwis on board. And we were kind of looking at each other and then my phone was on the table and it just started. I thought it was going to dance a little jig and dive off the table. I'm thinking, what's going on here? And I turned the phone over, looked into it and I everyone was texting me and the, all the notifications were lighting up that she had gone. And just literally as I looked at it and I said to my husband, oh, Jacinta's resigned. Just as I said that, out in the corridor I heard this man go,
1: ding dong, the witch is
4: gone.
6: From over, I guess, from over here, looking to New Zealand, there was always this idea about New Zealand. And it it was partly true of Australia for us. Like Australia always had that kind of, um, the idea of it was all these guys who were super laid back and mostly wore uh, flip-flops or thongs or whatever you call them, and they were outdoorsy. And if there was anything you could say, you could say it in Australia. And then there's this idea that we had, I think, British people generalising. But like New Zealand, oh, the land of hills and rolling countryside and people being free because they just live, you know, in a sort of grassy, leafy place. This idea we had. And then along comes, you know, Dan Andrews in Melbourne or we had like Jacinda and it completely crucified like our notions of what you guys were about. And I'm not talking about you, obviously, and our good people. I'm talking about the country. You know, it changed how we thought... Those countries were supposed to be the free countries. And then we were like, are they anymore? What's going on? Yeah.
4: It changed the way we thought of it too. So it was pretty crazy. But And things aren't quite right yet, but that's okay. This year is an election year, so we're all good. Mind you, you've been a bit topsy-turvy over there. I mean, are you going to hold off this prime minister for a while or at least five minutes?
6: <laughs> we have got through prime ministers. We've got through prime ministers faster than we get through toilet paper here in this house, which I can tell you is pretty fast because I've got three teenage kids and it's just crazy. But yeah, well, Rishi Sunak is uh, hugely disappointing, but he's perfect for Uh, The overlords. So if you think about the little cookie cutter leaders, so that would be Macron, little tiny guy. Um, Then you think about Rishi Sunak, little tiny guy, four foot six, I think. And then you think about Trudeau, absolutely one of their puppets. And the list goes on and on Zelensky and all the rest. He is exactly that. Rishi Sunak is the perfect um, little puppet. He's very quiet. He causes no headlines. He has no opinions on anything. He just turns up and smiles a lot in very short trousers. He's in, the, in that sense, As inoffensive as it's possible to be. And that seems to be exactly what the global leaders want. You know, the global masters don't want this kind of very bombastic Boris all about Britain and here's a union flag. They want vanilla. They want blend into background. They want someone you don't even know, you know, invisible Sunak.
4: I mean, are people missing Boris now that they've got, you know, Mr. Vanilla Sunak? I think there's some
6: sense of missing Boris, certainly in the conservative heartlands, it would be that they want Boris back. But I think an increasing number, and some of that's probably swayed by my own perception or that I choose to believe this, but so many people are so disillusioned with the political class after lockdown and after what's been done to us all, that I think most, many, many people would never vote again. It wouldn't surprise me Mm. if the numbers appear, until we're given decent options politically. I don't see that people in the UK right now have anybody to vote for. And I would say at least 50, 60 million people in the UK don't have a political voice under the system we have, which is first past the post.
4: Yeah, we see, we've got mixed member proportionals. So we do have at least an opportunity to mix things up at the moment. But the current bunch, and I mean all of them, we've got currently five parties in Parliament. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't give you five minutes for any of them. So we're certainly finding that here. So then you've got that sort of mood of a nation. Coronation Mm. coming up. Will that spark people up, Mm. make Britons feel a little bit cheery, get on the Union Jacks, dust off the, the button shirts and...
6: You know? Yeah, I, I think so. For, for I mean, there's obviously the noisy, angry ones who monopolise the lefty press, which are like, we don't agree with the monarchy. He's not my king. There'll be protests, raddy, raddy, rah. But on the day itself, you know, Britain loves a bit of pomp. Uh, we do pomp and pageantry brilliantly. And um, so sorry that we don't have our queen anymore. But it, in fairness, the queen's funeral was probably one of those days where decent ordinary Brits Um, with no links to anything to do with the monarchy, really, other than they were brought up like I was. At three o'clock on Christmas Day, you sit down and you listen to the Queen's speech and no one talks and no one moves, even though mum and dad snore through it. That, That day of the Queen's funeral was epic in terms of Britishness. And the reason people loved it so much and the thing no one was allowed to articulate was because our new arrivals and recent arrivals and people from other cultures didn't turn up For the funeral, because it wasn't part of their culture, it meant that for one brief moment in time, London looked as it used to back in the, I don't know, seventies, eighties. It looked; it was a glimpse back in time as the Queen was brought through the streets. London was was how it used to be. Yeah, it was nostalgic. in spades. And the other thing about that nostalgia is it isn't just mm, a feeling or a sentiment it's real in the sense that everybody was there to help everybody. There was a gentleman who was struggling a bit cuz he'd been walking a long time a crowd rushed in to help him. You know, someone was unwell, a crowd rushed in to help. Everyone picked up after themselves. Everyone left things clean and tidy. It was old it was old fashioned in the sense of a time when we <coughs> all used to be a little bit nicer. You know what mm. I mean? Um, And that's what that was about. So I'm hoping we'll see some of that on uh, the king's coronation as well. That would be fantastic.
4: And for him too, it's, I mean, he's waited a long time.
6: Oh, my goodness. Has he ever? Yeah,
4: he has waited a long time. But one of the things that I think is wonderful about the coronation is even, I mean, look, I'm not, am I particularly enamored with Prince Charles? Not especially, but he hasn't really had an opportunity to shine. And it's, as you said, it's that pageantry and it's a chance to actually celebrate your Britishness. And for us in the nether regions, it's a chance for us to celebrate being part of this greater Commonwealth, you know, which is part of our culture as well. and, And our legacy and our story. And there's actually nothing wrong with that.
6: Yes, exactly. So true. You know what's so true. And it's something that we need to be, all of it, I'm talking about myself, we needed to be reminded of on a daily basis is, it's so easy to find the negative. It is the mm. easiest thing in the world. It's like stepping out your front door to find a negative. I can find a negative in myself. In an instant, I can find a negative in my day or I can find a negative about a story or, or King Charles. Well, I'm not that bothered by the monarchy. And well, you know, he might be a WEF, a WEF guy. He talks about the climate a lot. I'm not into that. But the thing is, it's so much better to try and find the positive. Like many people will have a glorious day waving their union flags. Our military do nothing that that there's nothing they do better than dust off some thick woolen uniform when it's 95 degrees in the sunshine and parade about. And they get to be proud of being in the British forces that day. Great. You know, let's find the darned positives because we need to find them and we have to make endeavors the same endeavors we use to call out the bad stuff. We have to make endeavors to find the good stuff. And that, that's really my commitment, and that's really what I'm about, I guess, these days is you know, helping to sort of rally and lift up our side after a time of real darkness.
4: So, how do you think Haz is gonna get on? I mean, where it's gonna be a bit like seating that really naughty uncle at a wedding, isn't it? I mean, where do they put yeah. him?
6: Yeah, it's a nightmare. Mm. Like it's a nightmare. The the seating plan must be a nightmare, who they're not inviting. Is a nightmare like um, Andrew disgraced Andrew, his wife Fergie, who's like everyone thinks is a good egg, and she's quite fun. She's not even invited because they were divorced once, even though she was mates. She still mates with him. I think Biden's not coming. Jill Biden is coming. It's a very complicated. They've got Harry coming, haven't they? But not Meghan, and Harry doesn't speak to William, and blah blah blah. I mean, it's just it is the it's the <sighs> wedding from hell. It's the it's, wedding. It's,
4: it's- I know. Couldn't you just imagine them in Clarence House, sitting there trying to figure that out? It would be, oh. But I think more of us will be looking at,
6: you know, Camilla, like from being, I mean, I say this as someone that was described as the most hated woman in Britain was my uh, title for a while there. Camilla had that title too, you know, for the longest time. And she's really... She's really grown on people, like my mother, who, who genuinely likes the royals and loves it all and has been to the palace once for a Women's Institute, Kate something. Um, you know, mother will say, well, I think Camilla's doing a, a marvellous job, which I think is a good sign mm. of how Camilla has really grown in the nation's affections because she's a workhorse. You know, yes. she gets on and she rolls up her little sleeves and she's jolly all over the place.
4: Yeah, she typifies that sort of stiff upper lip British pragmatism, doesn't she? Absolutely, yeah, she's
6: great. She's great. And like when the whole Megan, Harry, William things kicking off, but Megan was pregnant, she was like, oh, well, listen, we're getting a baby. And a baby is always great news. You know, she's that kind mm. of person. Find the darn positive and talk about that a lot. Yeah, she's good news.
4: So you talked about your stand up gigs that you're doing. This is the live, laugh, uh, yeah. live, laugh, love. Yes. That's some alliteration for you.
0: I know.
4: <laughs> well, with
6: someone like me, it's really important to call it something that says um I'm not a Nazi. Uh, because the <laughs> idea of everybody that's trying to stop me all the time, despite this just being a funny thing, is, is that I'm going to be in some way a Nazi. So even if I was calling it right, like um right on humor or r- this is really right funny, people would be like, ah, oh, right, far right, no <sighs> Nazi. She's going to. Yeah. So literally you have to call it something as innocuous as you can, which is what I did. But I will just mention for your lovely listeners, um, because I suspect it's happening where you are. I know it's happening in America and elsewhere, apart from the um, public stand up events in theatres, the ones that haven't cancelled. There is in the UK right now an underground speakeasy network going on. And all the people that kept meeting during lockdown secretly in cafes, above shops, uh, underneath restaurants, they've kept meeting. And so once or twice a week now, I'm out at these underground speakeasies, just as in the days of prohibition, but it's no longer alcohol, it's speech. And the glorious thing is I go along and it's a mixture of of free talk and it's a mixture of stand-up and it's funny and it's great. And... And and that is what gives me enormous hope, is that this resistance, not in a military sense, is really really out there. Like this network is big, and and to give you an example, if anybody else works in the ticket business or you know selling tickets, so we just did a a underground speakeasy in Bournemouth, three hundred people. We didn't even no one knew about it. Was never talked of. No one advertised it. There was three hundred people in the room. And that's what this network is. It is powerful, it's super connected, and it's not public. And that's going on right now in the UK. It's very, this is an exciting time to be alive. For sure. Yeah.
4: Well, no, you're right. There is these secret networks and we're seeing it since uh, this radio station has started, you know, of people are coming you, yes. out and reaching out and they're saying, finally, you know, we, we're hearing our own voices reflected back yes. and we had this dreadful apartheid vaccine passport system. Mm-hmm. That was just truly hideous, but it was interesting. It was what that did create is that you got very, very good at creating your own networks and creating your own fun. We, again, all of these people are still meeting and we had a very large cyclone here in February. I don't know whether you're aware, but it was, it was pretty, pretty epic. And the town I live in was one of the ones most greatly affected. And as a city, an entire city, 75,000 people, we were out of power for a week. Min- minimum golly yeah and quite amazing how a lot of people aren't resilient to last that length of time with our yes. and we had our network of people like-minded people a lot of which are our neighbours and live up and down our street and we were those ones that were you know nudge nudge wink wink um, during lockdown time and <laughs> yeah and it was incredible because this disaster happened and we were already created this resilience around Mm -hmm. that time during COVID. And when it happened, we all got together, some of them a bit preppy, they had generators, we were were sharing our extension leads to everybody, we were making sure everyone was taken care of, and it was just, right, let's just get on with it. And we had that network of people there because... We didn't cut ourselves off from our neighbours when we were told to. We actually had those quiet, secret little chats over the back fence, even though Jacinda told us we couldn't, you know. (laughs) I just
6: love it. And that is so that is so important. And what is so important is that other people realize we're here and other people realize that your audience are, realize you're there. And that's why, you know, to your listeners, if you have a thought or even a suspicion (laughs) that someone in your neighborhood is one of us, it's a great idea to just, even if you just drop it through that little letterbox with, you know, what your show and how people can listen to you, it's a great way of just making sure if you bring one person, we're not, trying to convert anyone. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about allowing someone else to realise they're not on their own. And that's why what you're doing is so important. And these networks that we built during lockdown, when we realised, actually, no one's going to come help us. In fact, we may have to survive outside of the standard networks of government because we don't necessarily trust the government anymore. That's my personal view. And those are so strong. And what you're talking about is this resilience that we now have in depth, in our networks. And because we actively choose to belong to those networks, that is, in they matter to us, they're tremendously powerful. And when I see these underground speakeasies come together, the people walk into that room, you can literally see like almost colours, the, the their shoulders drop, their little, they almost like their little heads lift up and they know they're with their family. And they know that this is their space where they look like they're with their family and and they can just they turn up and they feel like they're at home. And in every town uh, I've been in a, above an underwear shop talking to 100 people. And I'm always asked the same question. Is it, is it just us? Is there just us? And it's such a pleasure and a privilege to say, no, no, no. You're in every town. You're in every city. And guess what? You know. You're in America, you're in New Zealand, you're in Australia. You know, our family right now is is epic in size. Uh, this is, a this is you're doing something really important. I know that for certain.
4: This is Counterculture with Marie. I'm with Katie Hopkins. Live, laugh, love is the tour that you're doing. But some of these main venues have actually been cancelling you. Surely now that you are, as you said, with this underground network, are these venues cutting off their noses despite their faces I mean I think didn't I hear that you had an inflation number that just got released was it today it's like 10.2 percent yeah. or something surely they'd be wanting to get any scrap of yeah. business through the door yeah it's it's
6: wild so so inflation 10.2 uh, food inflation 19.4 and it really probably feels <sighs> like 30 percent inflation because of other things, fuel. Underground speakeasies will always hold firm because those venues are the venues that just refuse to do what they were told. But when I now moved to public, and bear in mind, for five years I was not allowed to speak in the UK, as my Wikipedia page uh, gives a, a testament to. I was basically seen as, you know, walking evil. So five years later, I start these shows and theatres want them because I can sell out, but they get got at, as you know, we know by the uh, very uh, mouthy minority who have things like we represent the trans community, we represent the whatever community. And of course, I have nothing against anyone, um, but they cancel. So an example would be Stafford, a glorious theatre in Stafford, 500 seats sold out in 24 hours, um, you know, 25 Pounds a ticket, so like thirty dollars a ticket, not not cheap. Uh, and they just cancelled. So they, you know, that's ten thousand pounds worth of sales they just walked away from because they're scared of the woke mob still. And they didn't even call me to tell me. Actually, I got I found out from someone else who had their ticket money returned to them. So yes, I am still being cancelled today, five years later, after all the hoo-ha around me um, from venues because they're terrified of the woke and what the woke can now do
4: this is what i find interesting though because you're now doing these underground venues so i mean you've been cancelled with a capital c i've only been cancelled with a little c yeah it loses its power like they it's almost like a joker card they can only really play that card once and once they've played it you in a way i think it sets you free and i think it's it certainly seemed to have set you free. I mean, you have a, a lightness about what you're doing you've ever had before. Do you feel that way? Do you feel much happier now doing what you're doing than what you did, say, five years ago?
6: Yeah, I, I think um, you know. I I don't regret anything. I don't um, I don't retract anything. I don't apologise for anything. I mean everything I said. Um, but what I get to do now, after seeing after seeing lockdown, and I believe lockdown was is. A mass injury event and I believe people are the walking wounded. They're all carrying these injuries and people have tears that they carry around with them like a massive water bottle just behind their eyes. And I realized that I couldn't continue to just be talking about what I see happening as in the overthrow of our our country by a different uh, demographic, um, the fact we will be taken over by Islam, all the rest of it. I had to do something that also helped lift our side because the darkness is too easy to talk of. And so, yes, it's been lockdown and all of the rest of it, not only has it been so tremendous for strengthening a network that has more resilience than anything I've ever seen, it's also been very selfishly, it's been like a a renovation for myself. Like So people have done a 180. So loads of people will say, I hate this. I used to hate this woman. And now she's the first place I go. Um, So it's been really a, a massive opportunity for me to help bring our side together, to keep reminding people that we're on the right side of this. And we don't have to agree. Uh, We don't have to like each other all the time. Uh, We can disagree over stuff. And that's fine. But we will get through this. And it is so freeing, you know, because I've been, I've had my home taken, I've I had every job I had taken. I've been banned from Australia. I've been banned from South Africa. I'm banned from schools in Wales. You know, a couple of jihadis came from my head. Stuff, stuff has gone on in my life and it's meant that I'm so free. There's nothing anyone can do to stop me. So even if I lose a venue and I lose, you know, some income and whatever, and my heart is always with the 500 people who bought tickets to come see me. And what they've done is they found another venue on a farm and we're going ahead just in a different venue mm. and that's what I'm that's the resilience of our side they're saying they're saying no we're not going to let you be cancelled we're going to find a space and uh, and I'm just really proud of everybody for, and you know being part of this as I see it I'm the least in person least important person on there even though I'm on the stage it's the audience that's the that's the beating heart of what I think you're trying to do what I'm trying to do it's the people in our network that's the real that are really making this happen
4: do you think we've lost the ability to laugh at ourselves?
6: Yeah. You know, and that's what worries me with the kids. Like right? like if I have one message with my three kids, it's, I said it to my son when he left, have a great day, find the fun, find the fun, find the funny. You know, if my kids were to get into trouble to do because they were doing something funny, I'd be the proudest thing. My biggest fear is that gift of just laughing or doing something a bit naughty because it made you giggle or showing yourself up a bit because it made someone else have a laugh. You know, the days of being a slightly the clown so that someone else would go, that's a funny thing without it being videoed and then played back out of context or whatever, you know, that. And that's why I guess me being the clown or me being laughed at or laughing at myself and my varicose veins and my dastardly mustache that's growing all the time and all the rest of it you know it's part of that that idea that all these blooming women on Instagram or whatever pretending to be perfect wearing shape wearing cream or fawn coloured clothing you know oh get over yourself you know I have to hair dry my own crotch sometimes just to dry it out you know let's just put it out there I'm not asking you to, you know, indulge in that. I'm just sharing that that went on. It's that, yeah. And It's not about just sort of being crass, although that's part of it. It is, um, it's just being really, really like, so what? So what if you don't think I'm, you know, that attractive?
4: So what? Yeah. <laughs> And it's also, to the hairdresser. I mean, everybody's so offended by everything these days. Yeah. So just so you know, I've self-appointed myself the uh, president of the New Zealand Chumbawamba Society at the Katie's Arms. Yes, Chumbawamba! So, okay, Chumbawamba. so you did this documentary, what was it, 2010, I think? It was, <laughs> it yeah, was my yeah. fat story. I've been labelled many things from the, the, my fan club, and one of the things they get angry at me for is... The fact that i'm quite unashamed about the fact that i'm fat but i don't allow there to be any excuses for it so they say oh you, you you're not helping um other people mm-hmm. w- of size and and, and you're fat shaming them no i'm not i look i'm the size that i am i'm quite comfortable in the size that i am i know yeah. if i stop shoving stuff in the cake hole and stop drinking too much chardonnay and actually got moving a wee bit more a few more dog walks with the dog. I would probably lose a few more pounds. But I choose not to. Yes. But, that, exactly. that, that, but sometimes that changes. I have You have measurements. For me, it's that aeroplane seat. If I can't oh. get my large ass in that seat and that seat belt over, oh, girly girl, it's time to, you know, you need to, to put some changes into place, and one does that, and you feel better for it, and you say to yourself, Oh, I should have done this all along. I'm responsible for that, no one else yeah. is responsible. It's and that like and self responsibility's it. gone out the window, isn't it?
6: Yes, I think that's it. And just to sort of preface for people so, I am, um, I did, do you guys do kilograms or do you do pounds? Stones? We're metric, stones.
4: we're kilos.
6: Kilos, so <laughs> yes, I did. So, what was I? I was like, um. I was about nine stone. So either way, I put on half my body weight, like four stone on in, um, I guess, how how long did I take? Three months on, three months off. So I went from being skinny-winny to morbidly obese and then back again, three months on, three months off. And the idea was this idea of making people accountable for how we live. And people say to me, oh, well, I'm fat, Katie, so you wouldn't like me. Or I'm fat, so she'll probably hate me. And I'm like, that is not the message at all that I was trying to send. It's like, you be, you be what you want to be. Like, And I say this to anybody in any walk of life. You know, if you want to be trans, brilliant. Just don't ask me to believe the same thing that you believe. But I want you to live your best life and be the best you can be. Mm. And I say, say with wambas you want to be a wambas, be one. That's perfect. Just don't ask me to pay for it or... Don't expect me to give you excuses because I won't. People are coming at you. It's kind of crazy because they're saying, "Well, you're, you know, you're letting us down." Well, I'm not sure that you would have ever appointed yourself as a spokesperson for the fat community, right? You were only ever just doing you.
4: I mean, there's a uh, a fat influencer. I mean, as if there is such a thing. But anywho, a fat influencer in Canada at the moment that is um, all up in arms because she is petitioning airlines to oh, I know allow the one. Have, yeah to allow airlines to make sure that you get an extra seat and i'm just like no <laughs> no yeah that's
6: a no that's a uh, no and you know that would be that would be it doesn't have to be fat does it it would be like you know if you were really really smelly let's just say you were averse to showering and you you know you just like to be really smelly it's the equivalent of saying well everyone else has to wear a gas mask Because I'm smelly. No, no, it sits with you. You, And if you, if you're a big girl and you need two seats, no drama. You buy your seats. No drama. I mean, it it annoys me. I always, I and I I absolutely believe this. I'm I'm economist by background, but I believe we should have a weigh-in at check-in, and you stand on there with all your stuff, your case, your whatever, and you pay for your total mass, what you, your luggage, everything, and then everyone pays. It's the same for everyone. And I, I mean, I can see people saying, yeah, but I'm a rugby player, so blah, blah, blah. But I have to pay for my piddly little suitcase when I check it. What is it, 15 kilos I have to pay for? So it kind of annoys me that I have to pay for my suitcase when a chumbawamba carrying their own arse on doesn't have to pay for their arse. But you know, that's this is the world. The world isn't fair, as I tell my children.
4: No, no, the world is most certainly not fair. Actually, I had to went on one of those little float planes once, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and they do they weigh you on those oh, sort of planes. Brutal. It was the last time I was on a set of scales, and he said, "Oh, you know, how?" Because he asked me, "How much do I weigh?" And I said, "I, I don't get on scales." No, because no, no, because I, don't I have either. I have this perfect vision in my head. what I think I am (laughs) I have created this this wonderful illusion I don't need reality to come crashing on that in on this so no
6: (laughs) no and also scales scales aren't the way you know I think many many women and people can say well Katie sorry about well for you you're skinny Jimmy but but I think scales and I speak to women about this you know and and guys too but Scales can set people's day. So like some, I know women who sleep with the scales next to their bed so that before they put their foot on the carpet, they step on the scale so that they get the number they want so that they feel better about themselves. And I think, oh, that's horrible, right? Before you even start your day, you you're dictated by this number. No, I don't want that for anybody. Or then some people have to have a wee first. Some people don't do it until they've cleaned their teeth because they think that will make them lighter. I mean that's not that's not good. No one should have their day dictated to by how they think they're going to be seen. That's
4: silly. Where do you think you get your tenacity from?
6: Um, um I can't kind of stop it. So there's been times, for sure When I have, you know, laid down and thought, I can't, I cannot do this anymore. You know, my idea of speaking truth, keep speaking truth, even if it costs me, and then it costs me some more, and then maybe I'm humiliated. So I was tricked into receiving a horrible award and that was videoed. Uh, I won't say the name of the award because it's a word I don't use, but I was basically tricked and made an extreme fool of and that video was watched by i think 12 million people and there's been times and i'm certain i brought that humiliation on myself but they whatever trickery was used that's okay and there's definitely been times i've thought i can't i cannot go on and um and then somehow something kicks in usually just one sweet person says something that's so so right at that moment and it just makes me walk on and and i've been so lucky that now having walked this path for 20 years or so and just keep getting back up I've been so lucky that now I'm walking on a really light path that is you know there's so many people with us and with me and so, so people are so enormously kind supportive Um, so it's been such a glorious I've been very privileged to have this whatever this role is I have I'm so privileged and then Uh, I used to be very epileptic. So my seizures were massive. And they said that 38, uh, that within two years, one of my seizures would be, that would be it. You know, a seizure would get me in the end, like seizures always do. So I was, 40 was always kind of an uh, idea of an age. And then I hit 40 and I'm 48 now because I had major surgery and it cured, I had major surgery about 39, I think a year after the seizure should have got me. And then um, I, I'm seizure free. So in addition to having things taken like my home, my savings, my bank, my right to travel and stuff, I, I got this extra time. And so it meant that um, I am walking on extra time every day. And it means you're even more unstoppable because it doesn't even matter when the end comes because it was supposed to have come already. So so I've been really lucky and I truly, truly believe that our path is already set. And I believe that if you, the freer you can make yourself, the more your path becomes clear. And so often, as you'll know, I'm sure in other of your listeners, whether you're religious or not, things happen just at a moment when you really needed them to. And I'm like, you know, I believe that there's something much bigger that we walk towards. So that's what that's what keeps me going, uh, mostly just great people. And then the story today, sorry, I will stop talking in a second, but the story today, Charlotte Wright, the, the wife of her husband who was killed by the vaccine, She his death certificate said natural causes, and she knew, and she fought, and she fought, and she fought. And yesterday the coroner ruled uh, that his death was by the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I think of women like that who – She was pregnant when he died. She's had two years to fight this. She said, and I'm just going to quote it even with people in my life, there were questions and queries about whether I was telling the truth. So, two years later, I can finally say it's the truth. So, to your earlier point about the divisiveness, even people close to her refused to accept that her husband was killed by the vaccine. And she's fought this. And she's now the woman who made a coroner state that it was AstraZeneca that killed her husband. So you know, anytime we're feeling like, oh golly, this is tough, women out there are doing things that are are tougher. So yeah. uh, her name, just for everyone there, is is Charlotte Wright. If you have a moment, just to look her up, she's remarkable and terrific. And that's what I think our side is full of: is remarkable and terrific people.
4: Yeah, and now that you're on this wonderful path, what what gives you joy now? Now, that, because <laughs> when you've looked death in the face, which you have, yes. what gives you joy?
6: Oh. The cutest thing. So um, on the road a couple of days ago, I did, um, oh, I did never do a run without telling someone you did a run. No, but but there's a point to the story. Um, I did the Manchester Marathon, but I did it in, um, I did it in a top that Lovely Mark, who's my husband, people know Lovely Mark. And um, he did me a top that that was in the colours of the main sponsor, which is the British Heart Foundation. And the British Heart Foundation has refused to acknowledge the situation with people's hearts after the vaccine station getborn mm. so i ran in british heart foundation colours but my top said died suddenly in big letters and i ran 26.2 miles in that top uh, and stopped uh, for press pictures at the british heart foundation stand and the point of the story is not only were the, the crowd glorious, but as I came from the train station, going down the escalator, this lovely young guy and this sort of young guys, someone might've thought, oh, teenagers, hoodies. Oh. And he looked at the little lady that was a bit, bit wary of getting on the escalator. And he said, let me take your bag for you. Oh. So it's that, yeah. it's that, yeah. it's literally that moment. I'm like, that's, that's it. That's a message. That's, there's good. There's so much good. And I went up to him afterwards. I went, you just did. That was so lovely what you just did. It'll set me off any day of the week, that sort of thing. Just humans being glorious. And on that day of that run, 28,000 people running, usually individually, separately. And yet you looked at them all and someone went down, someone went over to help them up. Someone looked like they needed a drink. Someone would pass them a water. All Mm. anyone wanted of that 28,000 joined by you know, different religion, different views, vaccinated or not, this, that or not, whatever. All anyone wanted was everyone to get over the line. And when, sometimes you need to view humanity from a different perspective to see how glorious it is. And um, and that's what that afforded me. So that's where I find joy is just trying to get different perspectives and a little where I'm able help other people see those different perspectives just to have some hope. Yeah, that's that's joy.
4: I think the fight back is on. I really do feel that people are finding their voices again. And the ULES zone. So for our New Zealand listeners, can you explain to people what the ULES zone is? Because I've got a funny feeling the Londoners are not going to let this stand.
6: (laughs) This is a glorious story. So if you were to draw in front of you right now, I'm going to do it as I say it, two circles. So one smaller circle and then a bigger circle around it. Looks a little bit like a boob. So the nipple bit, that would be the inner London. And the Sadiq Khan, the London mayor, introduced an ultra-low emission zone in that nipple bit. And you had to pay money if you go in the ultra-low emission zone with the wrong kind of car. And the wrong kind of car is every single car that we own, apart from electric cars, of course, are perfect. What that little ridiculous London mayor, who I would hasten to add, is actually nipple height, and that's a height you should never be if you're a guy, um, he's now gone to that second circle you drew, the wider circle. He's trying to make all of Greater London, like basically the bottom you know, bottom right-hand corner of, London, of the whole of the country. He's trying to make that whole area an, uh, an ultra-low emissions zone. He's trying to say, if you get in your car miles, miles from London, you have to pay him £12.50. And if you get into it at the end of your shift to go home, You have to pay him £12.50. So if you're a cleaner, you have to pay him £25 just to get inside your car and use it in a zone that he's just making up. He's putting up cameras all over the place. We know where this is headed. We know this is headed to a place where we no longer have the right to own a car. And the brilliant, brilliant British people, the fight back that you just spoke to are going around and they are cutting the cameras. They are clipping the cameras. They've gone full on French. And it takes a lot for a British person to go French. They're putting bags over them. There's the Ulez Blade Runners. And so, what I did that went um, it went a little bit crazy, but I did this video where I was pretending well, I wasn't pretending to be an old lady because I am one, but I was just basically had this woolly hat and I was like, it is disgusting. This is vandalism. These people are vandalising the Khan's property. It's just cameras and it's 6.69 for the foam filling at Tool Station. (laughs) And that's disgusting. And other people I hear do also supply that, but it's 6.69 and I am out. And this thing went crazy. And the guy came up to me when I was doing the marathon. He was like, you're the 6.69 lady. And I said, sorry, pardon? And he was referring to the fact that I was, was heavily promoting this kind of concrete filler that you can fill the cameras with and so what a glorious thing that ordinary brits are going and just chopping these things down and saying you know what no nah, we're not going to we've got people walking through you Les, now holding number plates to trick the cameras i mean it's a great there's there's comedy in there there's humor in there There's no intent to damage anything important. There's just, we don't want to be filmed and we don't want to pay you our money. And it's not about emissions. It's about your pockets. So that's what's going on. Um, And overall, you know, it is my prediction within the five years, we will not have the right to own a car in the UK. And I think you can take that to the bank. They're coming for our cars every single day here. Uh, And it's quite serious. You know, you just you may have heard of the 15 minute cities.
4: Yes, it's in Oxford. Is that right?
6: Yes, you're you're super smart. Yeah. Oxford divided like a clock into six chunks, like a like if you do Trivial Pursuit, you know, there's little counters. All the pies
4: with With your pie. Yeah.
6: Yeah. So essentially Oxford becomes a pie. And let's say you're the, the blue bit of the pie, that little segment. You're only allowed to stay in your blue bit. You're not allowed to leave the blue bit you'd have to ask for a permit to leave the blue bit and you're only allowed to use the permit 100 times a year at the moment and if you want to cross over you have to wait till it's not 7 to 7 p.m. and you can feel this idea that they're just restricting so let's just say you're a mobile hairdresser you're screwed because you can't get in your car and beaver to your different clients anymore
4: because you're well, not allowed how, to. How, how, how would pie? a tradesperson get on? I mean, you can't. I mean, if you were a trader and you lived in one piece of the pie and you needed to see someone in another piece of the pie, what do you say to them? Oh, look, I have to walk backwards and forwards to my van because I can't park my van outside your house because I'm in the wrong zone. Exactly.
6: Exactly. And Ridiculous. they're putting in bollards. This huge ballot. People can't even believe this story is true. And of course, they call it the stories of conspiracy theorists. They say, Oh, it's just bus gates. It's just, it's just helping to reduce congestion. But you know what's coming. Oh, and it's you only know two that weeks that's what they flatten practice.
4: the curve. Yeah.
6: Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. You know that's what they practiced in lockdown, which was mm. how do we stop people on the roads? And and they're coming for it. But it's okay because we're calling it out, and all you know, it's gonna be all right. It is gonna be, I am certain. The light wins. I know that. And that isn't from fairy tales. That's not from the Bible. It's just the more things get dark, the lighter our side becomes. Well, the truth and, seeks uh, you free, doesn't it. it? So, Yeah. Yeah. This, could, this is. Anytime you're feeling a bit like, oh, God, this is the time to be alive. We were here for a reason. You know, if, if there was ever really, ever years to live through, as hard as these are, as much as our food inflation is near 20%, these were the times. I'm certain of it.
4: Absolutely. no, I couldn't agree more. And on that note, I love to thank you very much, Katie Hopkins, from the UK, This here um, on Counterculture. If anyone wants to find you and follow you, they've listened to this and they're thinking, oh, yes. I like the sound of that bird. Where do I go to find her?
6: Yeah, <laughs> anyone wants to come and find me, I have a special set of skills. <laughs> I will hunt you down. No. Um, so you can find me. Uh, this goes on a little bit. So maybe grab a pen. But if you imagine my name, Katie Hopkins, and then you just literally underscore everything. Underscore Katie, underscore Hopkins, underscore. That's Instagram. Uh, If you put my name in, you'll see terrible things about an evil woman who's clearly not a Nazi Hitler, Satan. That's also me, allegedly. And otherwise, yeah. So you'll find all of my stuff if you Google me or duck, duck, go me. And I I welcome you. Particularly, we started with Katie's arm. So maybe that would be a good place to end eight o'clock UK time. I don't know what that is, New Zealand time, but um, that's live. So if you want to join in, bring a glass of wine or a coffee in the morning in New Zealand, uh, join us for Katie's arms and you'll see just how many uh, we are and how glorious our side is. But I just want to say thank you. Thank you to good people of New Zealand for being part of the Fight Back. Thank you to you, my love, for what you do and your team. And uh, and I look forward to speaking to you all again uh, very soon.
4: Oh we would absolutely adore that, so thank you so much. This is Counterculture with Marie, you're on Reality Check Radio. Disgusting.
6: You know what these disgusting people are doing? It's vandalism, that's what it is, vandalism. They are getting filling foam from places like Tool Station 669, and they are vandalising the cameras that the Mayor of London is trying to put up in order to police the ULEZ though the ultra low emission zone that he's planning to expand to, well, pretty much anywhere near the back arse end of London and beyond. People are vandalizing his cameras. Certain places, every single camera that's been put up has been sprayed with this filling foam, 669 tool station. And I think it's abhorrent, you know, just because, just because you think you've got the freedom to drive your car. <laughs> Probably a diesel or a petrol car. I mean, you probably think that's okay. Not like me because I drive a Tesla. Just because you think you want to have the freedom to drive your car and you don't want to pay 25 pounds a day to do your job as a cleaner or maybe work for the NHS. And just because maybe you disagree with the Muslim mayor of London, who's only four foot two and used to be a lawyer for Islamist terrorists, that does not give you the right to vandalize these cameras using filling foam from Tool Station at 669. It's despicable. You people need to be a lot more compliant. Go and hoist your NHS flag. Go and hoist your Ukraine flag. Make yourself smaller. Eat bugs. Do not drive your car. Be tiny. Do not fight for freedoms. Fight to be, fight to be more compliant and smaller and more bitter. Be in the dark. Suck on a bug's ass and stop spoiling these cameras by getting film from places like Tool Station, Other. Retailers are available. 669 Terrible.
5: You're listening to Counterculture on RCR.
0: Reality Check Radio.
4: Wasn't Katie great? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at inbox at or you can now text 4040, type RCR before your message. Time for some more great music. This song was written by Eric Brazilian of the Hooters. He said... For me, the song was more about what happens to you when you look at something that has completely changed your worldview, which could be meaning God, or it could be meeting an alien, it could even be a near-death experience. It could be anything like that. Just how everything you know is wrong, or everything you know is right, and you didn't know it.
5: What I want to achieve with RCR is
2: conversation And the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission.
4: Welcome back to Counterculture. I'm Marie, and this morning I have got Ian Cummings with me. And we are going to dive in and have a discussion around Christianity in the modern context, particularly with culture, and maybe a little bit of politics and a few other things thrown in for good measure. Good morning, Ian. How are you?
5: Oh, very good, thank you. I've been looking forward to this interview, Marie.
4: So, tell us a little bit more about you.
5: Okay, well, um, my background, I was brought up in a, a very a unionist um, home environment um, by my my dad. He actually, has become a solo dad. Um, my two brothers, so I was the oldest of three in Christchurch. Militantly unionist. My dad um, came out on what was called the 10 quid boats in the 50s. And to arrive here, and a, have a better life from Glasgow, bad stutter. Um, all I knew was that um, nationals sucked and uh, rich people were terrible. It was workers versus the rest. And sad to say, <clears throat> I'm now married to a dairy farmer, farmer's daughter, by the way, but I, I dare to say, but sad to say, um, we didn't like farmers. We didn't like people with ski racks. Um, it was all envy, but pretty, very militant household. And my dad's aspiration for his three boys that we'd get a trade. And I escaped school at 15 and entered into a trade as a fitter and turner. I didn't really enjoy that much, although I I wanted to get out of school. I hated school, which is ironic because now I'm actually on the board of a school. (laughs) In fact, I'm the chair, and I'm a trustee member of trustee of a school, Christian school, Pukakaui. I finished my apprenticeship, and in those days, I think, big days, um, I chased the money. I chased the bucks as a fitter, went to Marsden Point, the expansion. Actually, I'm still in the oil industry. I manage a business which operates oil company assets at Worry. Look, during that, my time at Marsden Point, um, those were very bad, rough days. Muldoon, who all those Christchurch folk hated, and we used to, well, not me, but I know folk who wanted to throw pies at him. I think he might have been the first Prime Minister that barricades around in Christchurch. But it, to me, it'd be a waste of a good Stevie's pie. But at Marsden Point, I, was, I, I observed some very sad circumstances around the unions and just ridiculous. The sirens would go off, we'd all have to escape because of bomb threats. But was just so aggressive. And in the end, Muldoon banned strikes. So I got a taste of that. And I sort of, that maybe questioned things, you know, but this didn't seem right.
4: And I think that um, was the, um, or it was the, was it the Auckland dock workers? Wasn't that the final straw that broke the camels back on those, banning those strikes from memory? It was.
5: Well, my dad was a wharfie, <clears throat> a water cider. Well, you go all the way back to nineteen fifty is it 51? Yeah. Water, now, I'm not sure if that was, I, I believe the Boilermakers really broke the camel's back. Uh, uh, the Boilermakers, um, Mangaree Bridge and the Terrace, there was some steel yeah. structures down there. And now you won't really find a Boilermaker, they changed the fitter and welder. Um, no, but, but during that, that period, my, this is my life-changing moment. Uh, my brother, my young brother, very, very intelligent. Me, I'm just average, but he was super intelligent, 100% and everything type guy, and he was always reading a book, which we thought was pretty sad. But he was uh, attending Canterbury University, and he had gone religious. I, I got a, I got a call to say that he's gone religious. I actually got on an aeroplane. I was living in Auckland, so I actually got on an aeroplane, went down to see my younger brother because we are pretty close, Went to his student flat, which was just shocking conditions. <laughs> so, but went to his flat and look, he he told me about Jesus. And the last thing I wanted to know, or even last, thing, I didn't care anything for religion at all. It brought up that way. But he told me about this Jesus. And it was very confrontational And inside. I didn't make out or let on, but by golly. What he was saying shook me. Who was this Jesus? And the claims and whatnot. And I just couldn't get enough of um, asking questions of my brother about Jesus Christ. And I, was, I picked up a Bible, opened it, and read the first page and I had to show it because I thought it was rubbish. Um, but I kept going back to my brother and said, what's this about? It, it just latched on to me. And the, the long story short, over a couple of three years, where I basically said, okay, God, if you're there, I really want to know. If you're there, I wanna know. And and I made a commitment, I with I think it was sincere. So I said, look, if you are real, then I'll give you my life and you know. And so I was quite serious about that. Well, look, over a couple of three years, I just had serious doubts. I'd look outside and I'd see evolution, I wouldn't see creation. So, no, it's just a nonsense. There can't be another dimension. And I was reading the claims of Christ. I was sharing with, um, I used to have apprentices. So I was sharing with my apprentices. They're becoming Christians around me. So there's a whole lot of um, discussion around Christianity, and, and, and in particular Jesus, because I've got some problems with um, some of what represents Christianity. There was a verse in the Bible. It's in Hebrews, I think it's 11.6. He who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. I was hung up on that. I went and saw a pastor up at YR Road. um, His name was Ross. And I told him, look, I think I want to believe that God exists, but I can't. And he prayed for me. And I can tell you what, Murray, after that time, things just started uh, snapping. and And then one night, I looked up at the sky in a dark sky, and a verse that I knew came to me, which said, this Jesus whom you crucified has become both Lord and Christ. And I looked at those stars, and I spoke that out, and I just knew—I just knew—he was Lord. It was a revelation for me, and so I became a Christian full bore. Um, with street preaching, I did the works. <laughs> Everyone thought I'd gone crazy, the family, even my brother, thought I might have been over the top. But the, I, at that point, I joined Why Youth with A Mission, in a short, in a short. Um, Evangelistic type mission outfit. And they were going through a period where not only were were you, you know, you get saved as an individual and you don't go to heaven, you'd be saved and whatnot, but actually uh, the kingdom of God was far greater than just saving souls. It actually included redeeming all of society, all areas, the arts, education, government, business, etc., etc. And I thought, wow, this is a, and this was ex- this was the kingdom of God, not just saving souls, but the kingdom of God. And as far as um, sin had gone and, and the rot had gone, so too can the salvation of Christ bring it and bring life back to those those things. And I latched onto that so much so that I got fairly excited. YOM and, and um, after I left YOM, I said, oh, look, i am go to uni. I went to Auckland Uni to uh, find out, well. What is what makes things tick in um, in the humanistic world, humanism world. So I embarked on a, a degree in history, was public studies, history, philosophy, et cetera. Yeah, I got a degree, then I got asked, I was running out of money and I um, got a job with an oil company. And I, that was in 1990, a long time ago. And I'm still with the oil companies. But along the way, I've, got, I've become very interested in government. And when I say government, as a Christian, you've got individual government, you've got uh, family government, church government, and then civil government. Unfortunately, when we think of government, we think of the beehive, and it's all-encompassing. Well, actually, that's not the way God had structured it. If you look at Romans 13, good that's where good government is. Um, the state is a servant or a minister of God that is under God under god's transcendent law each of those governments they have their own sphere can't encroach on the others unfortunately what we have is we have civil government which is which has basically taken over family government or it's been surrendered to central government to the state and the church has been subdued although i don't believe there's in catholicism where the church and state should be one of course uh, there are huge mistakes many centuries ago around that space but so predicated on the fact that what's important for any society and good government of a nation is individual government, and Christians should know that. And that's when I got excited with ACT when Roger Douglas and Derek Quigley got together and formed Association of Consumers and Taxpayers in about 93, 94. I was in the Young Nats at that time in Vincent Street. I remember saying to my colleagues, watching the Fourth Labour Government, and saying to my colleagues, "Hey, aren't they doing?" what we say we should do. And it was just silence. And I knew I was in the wrong place. So along came Roger with ACT, and I got very excited. So I I basically, in fact, I heard went along and and heard uh, Rodney Hyde give a speech, and I thought, and my jaw dropped. I thought, wow, that guy can deliver a speech. Wow, it was so awesome. And, And just freedom, choice, personal responsibility summed Mm. it up and I thought as a Christian absolutely I know where I'm this is my home Mm.
4: see I'm I'm not a Christian but I do have very strong libertarian leanings and you've described a lot of those very strong libertarian leanings so because a lot of libertarians are quite devout atheists
5: yes well I I call myself a Christian libertarian now that might confuse folk but I'll In fact, I have and many times, and um, there are some of us around, but yeah, I'm quite happy to call myself a Christian libertarian with a capital C, though, mm. and a small L. And do no harm, yeah, right at the top. And sure, there are atheists, there are Christians, non-Christians who are libertarian. I value so, libertarianism.
4: So one of the reasons I wanted to chat to you today is to actually look at both sides of those that coin and the current cultural environment that we're living in, which is, has its roots actually in your background i mean your father's glaswegian background which is very much in the unionist movement which predicates back into socialism and if you go a bit further back into marxism and they've gone and flipped the idea of class so as you said as a kid in christchurch looking at people with roof racks and skis and Mm -hmm. having hating all of those sorts of things, and actually replacing that with power struggles and identity groups and hierarchies.
5: It's just terrible envy, by the way, I want to say hate, just terrible envy.
4: Terrible envy, Yep, yeah, fair yeah. enough. And how do you then now look, because it's more increasing secular society today than I think it's ever been. I mean, this country, I don't know when the moment would have been, for me growing up, because I grew up in a secular household, so faith wasn't a central tenant but in those days that was we were part of the minority most houses still had a faith based call, and in most cases that was christianity in the current secular society why where do you think modern christianity is now misunderstood I, i'm seeing as someone looking from the outside looking in that people in the current woke culture are very disparaging against Christianity, and I don't really understand why.
5: It's interesting that you thought that Christianity was pretty common. I I certainly wasn't brought up, and I didn't see any Christianity. What I saw was uh, rugby, racing, and beer-type culture, because they fear it. And and look, I'm going to tell you that it's a spiritual spiritual thing. There, There is another dimension which you and I, can't see, just like a fish, pops itself out of the water, looks up, think whoa, it's a different world, goes back, sees his other fish and say, hey, there's another world out there. Oh, rubbish. It's a bit like that. So for me, it's a spiritual battle in that yeah, people can't understand why the Bible should be relevant. They think it's an old archaic book, God that doesn't exist. They look to Christianity as being archaic and... Yeah, rather sad, I suppose. But spiritually, it's the enemy. You look at the communist nations, look at Soviet Union and whatnot, they were scared of the Bible. It was banned. China, they still banned Bibles. Why? It doesn't make any sense in that, except to say that it's a spiritual thing, and that's where the truth is. Fortunately, um, some people pick up a Bible and swear on it because they know that's the truth. So there's more. I think it's more of a fear of it And it means that um, if what's in there is imposed on them, that is the law of God, you know, then they won't be able to carry on their hedonistic sinning ways. They don't want someone to tell them what to do. Just like um, the Jews with Jesus said, we will not have that man to rule over us. It's so true. We don't want that man to rule over us. We don't want God to rule over us. We want to have it our way and live our lives
4: our ways. The hedonism, I think, is certainly something that we are seeing on steroids with the current cultural climate. The concept of boundaries, like, as I said, my family was secular, but we grew up with traditions that were steeped originally in the church. So you'd be nice to you people to and people would be share, nice in return. To, yeah. yeah, that's it. thank you. And you don't, um, you know, thou that shall not steal and you shouldn't cover your your neighbor's wife and all of those sorts of principles that are i think important in a civil society so even if you as using your analogy as the fish you haven't you've popped your head above the water and you've not quite decided to dive into that world out there there is still actually a certain level of civility and modern western culture was derived out of the enlightenment which again had a christian foundation even though you may be say a libertarian with a capital l which i'm not saying i am but a a libertarian with a capital l there is still that core of individuality and governance and self-responsibility which all had its foundations in christianity
5: Mm. well to go right back and uh, to go right back to the garden it's always been a conflict and it's about sovereignty so the sovereignty of man is the sovereignty of God. When the serpent said to Eve, has God said? So therefore we're questioning God. Right, and it goes right back to that for us as a Christian or Christians to understand that. So it's a sovereignty issue all the way. And we've still got a sovereignty issue. All through history The a sovereignty issue. You look at um, 1215, would we have the Magna Carta, it was a sovereignty issue. It was around the church versus divine rights, basically. And in fact, I think it was the first clause talks about that it was necessary for the freedom of the church. Um, and from the Magna Carta, we get you know, individual freedom.
4: In English common there. law.
5: Yeah, sure. Um, but But the battle was and still is around sovereignty, the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of man. And the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of man, it's, it's a battle of history. And I'm just reflecting on the beehive. Parliament calls itself sovereign. And, and so as a, with a Christian, though, the sovereignty of God trumps all. God's transcendent law trumps all. So Parliament and all laws should come under God's law. And that's where the battle is. We do, or people do not want to submit to God's law. End of story. So they create, if you like, a God on earth being the state. And so the state has exalted itself above God's law. And basically anything goes. And we're seeing some crazy, st- well, I consider crazy stuff going on around us, which you'd never thought any logical person would buy into, but it's happening. It, it's, it just seems absolute nonsense because of the, the compass is gone is spinning
4: one of the things i notice with people that follow what cultural or neo-marxism is there tends to be a real almost spiritual replacement they people that are really deeply steeped in the ideology it's replaced what is a god-shaped hole in their heart and and they follow it as fervently as any traditional religion do you see that
5: I do um, look. If someone had asked me to join the Communist Party in my earlier days, I probably would have because it had a, it's a worldview which basically looks seems to you know looks to rescue mankind. It's almost got its end times, you know, the rise of the proletariat and everything falls to pieces. Now the ashes, you know, comes the real man and whatnot. So yeah, I, I I see that, but it's still humanistic and it makes man the measure of all things. Unfortunately, whilst Marxism or communism seems like a great idea, and I thought I used to think it was, unfortunately, there's some, one thing that gets in the way, and that's human nature. Uh, and the Bible's got a um, a very small word called sin. So we've got we're born not innately good, but with a sinful nature. In fact, I, I remember I recall at uni one of the first things I sat there looked down at someone on the stage there, and he had the audacity to say that. Um, Children are born innately good, and that's how what they base the education system on. There are there are no absolutes and some daft things like that. But um, I remember looking around thinking, am I the only one that thinks that's a bit odd? They sincerely believe it. So everything's based on the fact that it's all this trust in the human species. works unfortunately as a Christian, I know we know that human species is flawed. Flawed with sin, and you can't. You train a child not to be naughty. You train a child to be good. And God's got a solution for that sinful nature. He basically has the solution is to replace a heart of stone with a new heart, and put in our hearts and minds a desire, a, a, a love, and a desire for His word and His truth and His law, to not steal, not commit adultery, etc., etc and not covet. If you don't have that, then what, what we do have is a state which says, <clears throat> which is based on pretty much, or well, the state is pretty much based on, it believes that is a higher claim over everyone's lives and property. That, that's what the state actually believes and, and unfortunately I think most of the politicians sincerely believe that and as a libertarian you, you'll understand that it, that's, that's a problem. But the state thinks it's got a higher claim over my life, your life, everyone's property, anything goes, basically. And so when the Bible says you shall not steal, that the state will say you shall not steal except by majority vote. Well, that's immoral. Mm. But most people think that that's a good thing. It's flawed. Indeed. Yep.
4: So within the Christian model, we have uh, spirituality, Jesus Christ and God at the top. Then down from that, obviously, is the sanctity of the family. I want to get your thoughts around how families are under attack and the the true nature of cohesive families are under attack and the role that the state is playing in that in terms of replacing themselves, as you said, as sovereign within their lives. Because I see with the disintegration of a number of families that a lot of the cultural and social problems stem out from that. And often the families that have the strongest cohesion as a societal unit are those that have faith at their core. What are your thoughts around that?
5: Hmm. Um, well, family's definitely under attack. Well, not so much under attack. it's um, It's been subdued. Look, God, God's made it very clear that the spheres, I've talked about person you've got an individual government, but there's family government. And, and the prime responsibility of the family or the responsible, the family is responsible for one, the education of their children, and the welfare of the family unit. And so, what we have is the government, and then that includes discipline, etc. But and welfare, and what we have is the state has taken over those functions. So welfare and education is um, areas of the state. So the state is the provider. Whereas before the 1930s in New Zealand, before savage came come along, there were societies, Christian societies, other societies, and in the welfare space, I'll talk about the welfare space. Um, it was around charity. Mm. And now we have state welfare, which, as I said to you before, um, how, how can you love your neighbour when you've got your hand in their pocket, in their back pocket, on their wallet? Or how, how can you love your neighbour um, when you use using, when you voting a party and that will take your neighbor's earnings and distribute it maybe to you or to others. basically taken over welfare, which is the family's duty and then so it made family or made the, the family dependent on the state, dependent on the state. In fact all the individuals within the family become dependents. rather than charity, we've got welfare. So I remember outside of a conference, um, having a discussion an argument actually with a Greens person. Um, and I said, look, I believe in welfare, but not state welfare. I believe in charity. Voluntary giving is a far more nobler thing than using the state to forcibly take other people's earnings. So, yeah, so that the state has taken over the family government, even Christians as well, I'm, I'm sorry to say, most Christians have bought into that as well, whereas someone is in need, they'll look to the state. The state will provide for them. Once, you, Rather than God being your provider, they look to the state. The church has the opportunity to look after those individuals with regard to welfare. But they don't. They don't need to, and people just trot off to the state. I'm, I'm, I remember a fellow telling me, wouldn't it be great if all the Christians decided, right, we're not going to uh, take money from the state, from our neighbours, basically. We're all going to go along to whatever office and say, take me off the welfare. And they say, why? Well, my church is going to provide for me. Um, where where they come from, look after themselves, the church is going to. Now imagine if all the Christians in this nation did that. What a difference that would be. When, when you're out there on the hustings, as I have been many times, Trying to get people, even Christians, to reject the state welfare and look to charity, it's very, very difficult. You don't win many votes in that space. Mm. And the same, too, with um, with education. I'm, I'm, I'm involved with um, a Christian school. Um, I, I very much think that um, homeschooling is a great option and a Christian education or a Christian school is a another good option if you can afford it. The state has no business being involved with not just welfare, but also education. That's not the role of the state. Romans 13 points out what the role of the state is, and it's basically to um, punish evil. It's not to create a welfare state. It's not to create schools, etc., etc. cetera. Et cetera.
4: Let's have a look at schooling. Charter schools were wonderful. There was saw an increase in faith-based schools at that time, because it allowed schools to be founded around a central tenant and actually look after their own community. And they have wonderful communities around those schools. With the dissolving of charter schools, how has that affected faith-based schools in that space?
5: Um, It would have. Charter schools are a a good thing, in my view, but they're not the best thing. And I'll tell you why I've got that. I think that's because the funding of those charter schools comes from the state. And therein is a problem. Why should I, or why should someone that doesn't doesn't have any children or doesn't agree with whatever education, but still has to pay the state a certain amount of tax? So I have an issue with that. But having said that, if you look at things, charter charter schooling was a great idea. And I understand the States, it's um, it's still going strong. I think even Obama enjoyed it. So to have the Labor government come along and just basically sweep it away was just outrageous. I'm not actually aware of any Christian charter schools. I'm sorry, Marie.
4: So how did the school, so like you, I mean, you're on the head of a, with a school Mm. and the, with the curriculum now you have things such as uh, Māori mythology taught as part of the science curriculum, as an example, how do you navigate that in a faith-based environment?
5: If you're a state integrated school and the school I'm with is not state integrated, it's independent. So it's not funded by the state. The state integrated school is funded by the state, and so there'd have to be a... Who pays the pipe or calls the tune? <laughs> that's just... That's not in the Bible, but... <laughs> who calls the pipe or pays the tune? Uh, pays the pipe or calls the tune? So there's a point where um, the state would be able to push and enforce things that might not be agreeable to the state-integrated school, and, and um, there was a recent case up north, wasn't there, Kerry-Kerry, I think, uh, where a school couldn't tolerate... Um, a certain issue and decided to basically shut the school. Now there might have been more going on with that school, but it's, but that was their die in the ditch moment. But the school I'm involved with, the state doesn't have you can't break the law of course, but no. the state yeah the state isn't enforcing that into our school at this point. Mm. Um, why? Because I don't think it can.
4: Well, where does it sit? Because like, as an independent school, where do you sit in regards to national standards? There must be certain benchmarks that you have to attain or adhere to in order to work within the educational framework.
5: Well, you can, you can choose a curriculum. It, 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 we use Cambridge. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't have a problem with what national are proposing. Um, but, yeah, we use Cambridge. Um, we don't use NCEA. There are other schools using Cambridge, so you've already got that in place. Mm. Um, yes, it's not imposed. It wouldn't be a problem. Um, parents need to know where the child's at, want the parents to know where their child's at. Some of us, I mean, I wasn't blessed academically, my brother was, but um, you, you can't improve something that you don't measure. You've, you've got to measure. And so Cambridge actually has a very tough curriculum, but it's very, It's an excellent curriculum in that it, it Gears children up if they want to go to university. I think the first year of university, they just cruise really.
4: In terms of the modern church, COVID I felt was really isolating for a lot of individuals, a lot of people, but especially a lot of people involved in the church being separated from their community and their core for worship. How did what's what did you see during that time, particularly during the lockdowns?
5: I've got to say I was fairly disappointed with um, with most with most of it. Um, Very disappointed in that for individual Christians, it seemed, sad to say, it seemed to be that all it took was someone to whisper into an individual's ear, if you don't take this shot, you're going to lose your job. And many capitulated, many went to that, weren't willing to say no. So I was quite disappointed with the position of many Christians. And I've got to say, churches um, willing to submit to the, the state in that area. But those decisions they made. Uh, and going online is not, <laughs> not quite church, is it? it? Church is getting together and being taught and you know, engaging and basically, you know, being able to touch someone. And we lost all of that. It's so easily And so quickly, I think we lost our minds. In fact, I think we lost our nerve with the state. How dare the state enforce something like that on the church, let alone the individual? And when you think back, or if you read back into First Church, um, a lot more severe, of course, um, if you didn't sprinkle something, to say that Caesar sprinkled some incense into a bowl or something and say that Caesar was Lord. You know, you could go to the lions, um, to the beasts, um, and and there are Christians who refused that and lost their lives. And then you look at us a couple of thousand years later, really saddened me that we're so easily subdued by the state and not willing to pay the the cost. I heard um, some churches talk about Romans 13, and that they use Romans 13 um, where it says to obey the government. And they just say, well, we must obey the state. Well, mm-hmm. that's just not so. Historically, um, there are people like Samuel Rutherford, who wrote a book called Lex Rex, 1600 uh, something or other, which shows that, well, actually, there's some times where you mustn't obey the state. In fact, there are quite a few times in the Bible where people are championed for refusing to obey the state. But here we were. So willing and ready to not just do that, but you know, there are some people dobbing in their neighbors. Mm. It just seemed incredible. So I found it a very uh sad time. I mean, I was at a funeral this morning and I was reflecting on just a couple of years ago, I couldn't even go to a funeral. And here we were in a funeral. I was in the funeral this morning, hundreds of people there. And the state took that away where people weren't able to mourn properly. Yeah. You know, it's just as diabolical what we all went through and for the church there's some there's some people some pastors speaking out dear brian tamaki good on him pretty radical but but there were some that spoke out and were willing to even get arrested for it you know to uh, protect our freedoms
4: and that's what i found really interesting because he was almost a lone voice in that space in terms of theological leadership i mean you didn't see uh any any of the traditional churches in fact from my understanding many of those wholeheartedly went along with a lot of the COVID measures you know why would you do that particularly in that environment it just showed you as you said the effect of the state over the church
5: when you look at their history and where they are now it's just chalk and cheese really they do wonderful wonderful work out there but also, though the, the first, one of the first was well, the leadership. Anyway, always asking for the state to do more or insisting that the state increase this, that, and the next thing. Um, that, I find that rather sad. Was that our, Was that the church's die in the ditch moment? Probably not. But I'll tell you what, though. What what it means is, if that was a test, we're going to be put to death for refusing. We've we've come up with a big fail. We really have, in my view. I, I, I am involved with one ch- a church that um, did actually put a letter to, together and um, send it off to, to their MPs and whatnot, protesting. Um, but that's as far as that went. There are others like Brian Tamaki who really pushed the boundaries, and I, I actually um, thought that was great. Of course, the media love to ridicule Brian. Uh, <laughs> a, I don't know the man personally. But um, he did look, seem like he was out there alone. I know there's another fellow in Christchurch who was pretty outspoken, a Baptist minister. Um, but there are few; they seemed to be few and far between. And so we were alien, yeah. And being away from the church community, corporate worship, and whatnot, we were being we were alienated. and, and the state did a wonderful job of doing that. Um, very very sad. And now churches are finding is the numbers have um, changed somewhat in that people, it's quite easy just to stay at home and go online or folk have moved on to other churches. So, um, yeah, there could be some struggling going on out there amongst the churches. But that corporate worship and being able to break the bread and whatnot together was basically taken away by the state. Biggest belief that that could happen, but it did. Mm. And they can do it again. This is the scary thing. It hasn't gone away. They could do it again.
4: One of the things that I know with Christians, and many that I know, is that they have, they tend to be glass half filled as opposed to glass half empty. So, where do you believe in order to fill up a cup for someone like me, an old agnostic like me? What is something in terms of that you think would be quite positive looking forward for people in terms of filling the cup and, well, knowing that there could be something better out there and wanting to affect change, how they can affect change and what you think the church's role in that change is going to be? Okay,
5: that's a good question. Um, as far as hope goes, um, every Christian has hope. <clears throat> it's it's never hopeless, because if God is sovereign, if Jesus really is Lord of lords then and sovereign, then everything is in his hands and all circumstances are under his control and we can take um, solace in that. But that doesn't mean to sit around waiting, staying holy to get to heaven. Things are pretty tough and things are going to get really tough financially for many, many folk. But what I would say to Christians is that um, we've really got to recognise that the state is not our friend. The state actually is, or has um, taken upon itself to be God on earth, basically. The state is not our friend. The state never has been our friend. The state is actually, has taken over individual rights, church, family, and it must be subdued. And so I think, New Zealand being a small country, there's only five million of us, we could turn this around. There are plenty of, not just Christians, but plenty of individuals who have had a guts full of national and labour being status birds, wings of the same bird, no matter, no matter which one you vote for, things just carry on uh, down the socialist track, basically. National may be a bit slower than labour, but still going in that same direction. But we're Christians, we Christians, we've got the answers. We've got the answer to welfare. It's called charity. We've got the answer to education. The, the state has no business being education because it can't do a good job. It does a lousy job. Politics and education don't mix. And, and the state does a lousy job at everything. Just look at our roads. Look at, there's so much whinging and whining going on recognising the government's hopeless. And just changing the government with another lot is not going to... In my view, it's not going to make any difference. We have got answers. The Bible has got the answers. We can maintain um, optimism that we can turn this around. But one thing we've got to do is shrink the size of the state. It must be reduced. It must be reduced. And so my call on everyone is to recognise that the state that one is, is not your friend and it must be reduced. And so, yeah, I, I, I remain optimistic that that can be done. Click New Zealand. If, if you're in the States with 300 million, that's pretty tough call. But here in New Zealand, only 5 million. Um, we can turn this country around. We really can.
4: Mm. No, I certainly believe we can do that. And I mean, every great journey, as they say, starts with a single step. Well, Mm. Anne, thank you very, very much for coming and talking to me about this, because it's interesting to to get that view, the Christian view. As I said, a lot of these views have been suppressed in the media or painted with a negative light. And I think if we're all to get on together, we need to make sure that we can have conversations like Christian with non-Christian and all work together under the same understanding. And as you said, there is hope out there. And mm-hmm. and if we unite together to, to work together as one group, we can actually affect, I think, really positive
5: change. So, oh, absolutely. Thank you, Marie. I-
4: no thank you very much for having us don't disappear there is still more to come here on reality check radio you're with counterculture with marie
5: you're listening to counterculture on rcr reality
1: check radio
4: marty gibson will join me with media matters shortly and yet again the media gods have provided so much content to chew over welcome back to counterculture this is media matters with marie and well actually the man that does lots of reading of newspapers on the weekend now marty gibson how are you Marty? i'm
0: good thanks how are you
4: i'm very good and i did some i did some work over the weekend and actually dived in and grabbed a few myself to further the cause to see what was actually out in the wider world of print and there's been, a, again, so, I mean, every week we say this, but there, was, there has been a lot in the week of media. Uh, let's kick off, I think, with the obvious. Yesterday was Anzac Day.
0: Yeah, it's good to see that they're, they're marching again after that time off. And there's some great stories in the papers around that. And the fact that they're alongside stories of young men at a similar age doing things that are, are rather less, uh, I wouldn't say glorious, but less noble. In, in terms of self-sacrifice and honor. It's a measure of how far we've fallen. I, I saw, I read the story about the uh, the young Spitfire pilot, He must have been uh, 20, uh, and just listening to him talk about, you know, flying off the bows of these World War I aircraft carriers, coming into land, you had to adjust, adjust for the ship bucking around. Of course, there was the problem finding the carrier with as a little as an hour's fuel supply left. The ship, unlike an airfield, could do 30 knots and it wasn't where it was when you took off. Some pilots were lost at sea, flew in the Arctic convoys. In another part of the Weekend Herald, uh, there was a story uh, about um, a man of similar age who punched a 75-year-old woman in the face and broken her occipital bone. And it says the attack victim at the Posey Parker rally. That was then and this is now. It, it had a, a story, attack victim in silence, but all she'd basically said was that she was a mother and a grandmother and she'd been looking forward to listening to the rally speakers. Uh, And the young man, I understand, has name suppression, which is... uh...
4: Not an easy feat to to achieve on what, you know, would be considered common assault.
0: Well, common cowardly assault,
4: Mm. I'd add. I can't remember. I do vaguely remember listening to somebody talking about wanting to, one of the parliamentarians, wanting to get on top of these cowardly punches, you know, those king hit type punches and having legislation around that and to me this equally falls into this category if not more. This generation and our generation falls into this category too, you know, we've had what, two coming up, three generations who have never had to face going and embarking on a world war, so we can't relate to what that must feel like at all. Well,
0: well I mean, this is where I'll give us a plug as Generation mm. X people. I think there's a generation gap after us, Marie, where I'm, I'm not sure about you, but you know, I spent quite a lot of time with my grandfather and great-uncle who, who fought in World War II, survived the Depression, and, and that made uh, an indelible stamp on me. Another story actually was um, that I didn't realise was Wayne Brown talking about his father who'd, who'd been the lieutenant colonel in charge of C-Company. Again, you know that the fact that he had him as a father is interesting. Mm. He, uh, of the one hundred and thirty seven men my father fought alongside in C Company, only forty four survived the Battle of Alam al- Haifa. That would and I guess in a similar way to to the way it inspires us to not let it all just turn to dust. It probably he probably has a similar motivation to stop the rot.
4: Yes, I did. I spent a lot of time actually as a kid with my grandfather and he had my grandfather was one of thirteen and he had eleven brothers and of those eleven brothers I think it was eight or nine went to war. Right. They would they were getting together to catch up and often they were getting together to talk about what had gone on then. And when you think and when I think about it, see this was sort of the seventies. So I mean for them this is still very fresh. My grandfather used to tell the tallest stories though. He had this finger that looked like a hammerhead shark which for me as a kid I was absolutely fascinated with and he'd broken his finger and it was like literally the top of the bone was perpendicular and it looked literally did look like the head of a hammerhead shark he told the story to all the grandchildren and all the nieces and nephews that he got that fighting the fighting Jerry fighting Jerry in the trenches and he put his fingers up to test the test where the wind was coming off and it got shot. Uh, when in fact he'd actually dropped a keg on it because he was a publican and he dropped a keg on it oh, and it right. broke it and he was too couldn't be bothered going to the doctors to get the bone set. I imagine all
0: the stories like that.
4: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and it's horrible doing the maths. And mm. okay, so if this was the seventies, you're say it's nineteen eighty. I mean eighty minus forty five is thirty-five. You take thirty five away from us now. We're talking the mid nineties yeah from now it was world yeah. war 2 i remember uh, my father going to have a whiskey with one of his patients who'd fought in world war 1 meeting the old chap i can't remember his name unfortunately but um he he built boats and so he had things to talk with uh, my father about but yeah those men were still around and they were still active and what um, what is
4: encouraging is the number of people that are on those generations below us, the Wise, the Millennials, um, and even the Zoomers who are actively taking part in Anzac Day commemorations. So that is, I think, very positive, and it's a really positive for th- thing for them to do. Uh, so that's that's great news. But yeah, as you said... Is it, just... is
0: it though? I've gone the whole time we've been doing the show without using the phrase virtue signaling. <laughs> but you know, unless I knew you were going to go there. Yeah, unless it's um, actually buttressed with a real effort to understand how awful humans can be to each mm. other. And I'd add where socialism always leads, which is gulags and empty shelves and starvation. It's fuzzy, but um, you know, you've know really got to confront what it was these guys were fighting for and, and gain sufficient education that you, when, when someone says, oh, you're being a Nazi, uh, complaining about us behaving like Nazis, that you've got the knowledge of history to say ah no that's that's not what's happening
4: douglas murray references this all the time Mm -hmm. that the lack of knowledge of actual history is a concern and you're right it's the what history are they being taught
0: well you know there's that saying uh if if you don't study history those who don't study history are, are doomed to repeat it but there's uh An appendum you could put on that, which is, and if you do study history, you have to watch every other dumb bastard repeat it. It doesn't necessarily make it any easier. It makes it harder, in fact. Yeah,
4: Yeah, it does. Moving on, both you and I pulled this piece out across the weekend. This was in the Saturday Weekend Herald in the A section. So it was quite a big piece in regards to the health sector. And before people go, oh gosh, they're going to talk about COVID because that's what that station does. No, I'm not going to talk about COVID. I'm actually going to talk about something that I do know quite a bit about. The headline is Kiwis losing losing in postcode lottery. And what they're referring to is depending on where you live, the quality of health services within the public sector can vary wildly. This is nothing new at all. It's been going Mm. on ever since I've had uh, stuff to do with the health system, which is... Uh, from a professional perspective, and that's been 20 plus years. Cataracts have blurred Elizabeth Kerslake's world and often cause headaches. On sunny days, the glare makes her reluctant to drive. In July, she travelled from her Queenstown home to Dunedin Hospital and spent most of the day being assessed for potential surgery. Finally, she was told she didn't qualify. This is where the COVID tie will come in, is with COVID, as we know, a lot of elective surgery got stuck on the back burner. Cataract surgery is really interesting. It's one of those surgeries that is quick to perform, relatively cheap on an elective surgical perspective when you put it into comparison with the likes of knees and hips and gynecological and all of that. Cataracts is very, very cost effective. It also potentially is one of the ones that can be quite life-changing because without clear vision, There are a lot of safety issues involved. Driving a car is one of the key indicators in terms Mm. of whether or not you go forward for surgery or not. And then also falls. One of the leading contributors to falls Uh, particularly people of a certain age, is when their vision has actually dropped quite considerably. And whilst there has been some study and papers written around this, it's never really often linked together. But it's a pattern that ophthalmologists see time and time again of their patients waiting for cataract surgery and and suffering falls, and ultimately it's the fall that gives them very adverse health outcomes, not cataract. However, uh, a cataract doesn't create pain which then in turn doesn't necessarily create an urgency for most patients to do anything about it. And what will often trigger them to go and see an optometrist or an ophthalmologist is usually them failing their driver's license. Right. So that's what will send them in. Once you go in there, if you're in the public system and you finally actually get an appointment to see an ophthalmologist, which can take, well, theoretically it's supposed to take less than four months. That's what the health system has deemed that you should be seeing an ophthalmologist in four months. Well, the COVID years, that never happened prior to COVID. The COVID years completely blew that out to hell and gone. What they were doing prior to COVID is if it exceeded, I think if it got to about six months, DHBs would then send that referral back to the initial referrer, which was usually an optometrist, but sometimes a GP, and then would say to them, uh, we, they can't be seen at this time. Um, either you monitor them or try again. So that's how they dumped all those patients off a list. Uh, so a waiting, the waiting list
0: didn't get too long?
4: Exactly, so that's how they massaged the numbers there and you would get patients who would get frustrated.
0: Thank God we've got the managers to do that sort of heavy lifting in the health system. It must be worth the money if if they provide that sort of outcome.
4: Then, of course, the COVID years happened. The restrictions all came on in terms of what services were done and seen. I can't tell you what those waiting lists are now. All I know anecdotally is they're massive. A lot of work has now been subcontracted out into the private sector. However, the problem being is you don't have the workforce, and this isn't just across this specialty, it's across all specialties, as a lot of ophthalmology has always been one that has required a lot of lots of consultants on the ground to, to cover things off. Many of them were sourced from overseas, and a lot of them went back to places of origin. There were also ones mandated out. And that's never mm. talked about. Never yep. talked about, including one that is in this very region in question, which is why it pricked my ears up. So this woman is based in Queenstown. She had to go to Dunedin. I know for a fact that one of the is is now one of the Dunedin ophthalmologists has got a family in Dunedin, and he is commuting between Dunedin and London. Right. Yeah, but none of these things were mentioned. There was a small piece in here saying health officials say there won't be dramatic reductions to the waiting list times until at least 2025. A major challenge is severe workforce shortages, including the nurses and anesthetic technicians needed to run the operating theatres. Changes recommended by the task force set up to help clear waiting lists and to be made or explored, including allowing specialist GPs to do diabetic retinal screening." Now, one of the things, there are two things with this. Part of the problem she suffered is that to get surgery, you've got to score everybody. Everybody gets a ranking. Auckland has the lowest scoring system at 46, where she is in Southern District at a 61, which is exceptionally high. So it means that you practically have to be white cane dog material before you'll get your cataract done in the Southern District. The excuses given here, whilst there's no argument that there is issues around nursing workforce and anaesthetic technicians... Most cataract surgery in the public setting is done under local anesthesia. So I'm talking what they call a block or even just local anesthetic drops. There is no anesthetization of the patient from a general perspective. Anesthetic technicians are not required in that instance. In fact, a lot of private ophthalmologists will actually perform private cataract surgery under local anaesthesia you know as long as they have themselves in a nurse or sometimes they will have an anaesthetist just in case for cardiac issues and that's it so it is again one of those elective specialties that is not very staff hungry but when you have a system that has created a protocol around having all of these people here, whether they're required or not, you then have a system that has been the architect of the problem, I would say.
0: Mm. Back to that old uh, government is 50% of GDP. I remember when my father moved his medical centre. Someone at the—it um, was not the DHB. It was the uh, another one of those um, organisations. I think it was a
4: CHI back then, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, something Ground like, like that. Ground Health Enterprise. Oh, so you know who's covering you while um, you close down to do that? And he said, "Well, we're not closing down to do it." I said, "Well, no. I mean, you know, normally it's three days." I said, "Well, no, we're going to shift overnight, open the next day," and he did. That's the drag of government that I'm going to keep hammering about because it drives me nuts. Mm. Uh, there's so much of 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 these problems, and and as we're reading the papers, something we talked about earlier, it, you start to see the links, but you've got to put them together yourself because you can't really count on journalists to do it. An article on health, which in the Sunday Herald, but it may have been in the conversation part of it. I tried to get something out of this, but it it was about new services key to improved health and well-being, and it was a lot about equity, and it was it was by Anna Matheson, who's an associate professor in public health and policy at te Heranga waka victoria university yeah her specialty is a complexity theory and so i had to look that up as well to, to sort of see where she was coming from but she talks a lot about equity and what i gathered was it's basically a way to justify how unreplicatable most social science experiments are mm. And and it sort of ties in with Marxism a bit. So much of the paper is a closed-room conversation between academics, politicians, and uh, consultants. Mm. It's where most of the articles seem to originate from.
4: That issue of the postcode lottery or any elective surgery, none of that is going to get fixed while you have systems that are set up that are not fit for purpose. This is a really good metric is most of these DHB, like in cataract surgeries, they run a list. So they'll have a morning session and an afternoon session. Uh, In the DHB that is here, I know most cataract sessions will be only around four cases, six at an absolute outside. Most of those surgeries, so the actual surgeon's component of that is usually only around 15 minutes, 20 minutes tops. It's actually a very, Very short procedure. But the faffing around that is mandated by the public system in terms of protocol and systems and everything to get that patient through the door, into the theatre, have their surgery done and out again, which is completely unnecessary, it's got no effect whatsoever on the positive outcome on the patient whatsoever, has been that is the efficiency, that's the productivity that that list has. Whereas in the private setting, which still has set standards that they must maintain, there are external standard assessors that go through private facilities to make sure that you can meet those standards. Because there is an economic element there that those facilities need to meet, they then look at your efficiency and they will pull the number of staff and the process is vastly more streamlined and you will see surgeons comfortably doing eight to 10 procedures. Oh. You get this decision. a lot with
0: A and E. A and E doctors are an interesting uh, group of people, often, but nurses probably more than doctors say, "Well, you know, we provide a free service." It's like, no, it's not. Your, your per-patient cost is about hundred and thirty bucks, whereas private general practice is thirty or forty
2: hmm.
0: for exactly those efficiencies um, that y- that you talk about. You, you get this faffing around like Anna Matheson's, and she sort of is aware of the problem. She talks about the sum of policy attempts to reduce inequality from taxation and regulation to health and welfare delivery have not come close to stemming the flow of resources away from local communities. So she sort of wants it to be local, but they're not of the frame of mind to identify government as the problem. She mm. sort of still sees it as a solution, but decentralizing it or, or devolving some services to, to government-funded Maori organizations. They never quite get there and see government as the problem. I
4: mean, I just looked at that entire article and the eye rolling was almost got a headache with the eye rolling because the journalist completely missed the point that the issue here isn't the fact that she can't get a cataract done. The issue here is the system has been designed to fail. And until someone calls out the fact that the system has been designed to fail and that there are parallel systems available that aren't failing, you know, nothing is going to be achieved. And speaking of systems designed to fail, uh, Three Waters, I understand that you are, well, what are they, have given it a new name now, I've not kept track.
0: So yeah, Three Waters, there, there, were, there were three pretty critical articles about Three Waters, the least critical was Stephen Joyce, who's always pretty mild-mannered, but still made the salient point that whoever thought up the idea of relabeling the unpalatable Three Waters reforms as affordable water reform should hang their heads in shame, and so should the ministers who had sufficient contempt for the public that they thought simply rebadging something this contentious would achieve a positive reappraisal of the reforms and and also he points out the current reforms are a recipe for discord and disharmony when more people work out their access to water is effectively controlled by one part of society who have the right whakapapa then the proverbial will truly hit the fan also nobody knows how a water services organization will be required to respond when the first mana whenua group declares for example that auckland should take no more water from the waikato river that ambiguity allows people to assume the worst. And in the middle, you had uh, John Rowan says, Chris Hipkins is doing his utmost to keep the public poorly informed, never acknowledging the directive power of these statements. Denying co-governance is what equal representation on an overseeing body does, claiming at the same time that is no different from the co-governance of places iconic for iwi. And and he quotes um, earlier in the article, on Waitangi Day this year, the Herald published an interview by Audrey Young with one of New Zealand's most influential treaty researchers, Dame Claudia Orange, who said, I think the general public is not aware we're going through huge revolutionary changes at the moment. And I think that really cuts to the nub of it. That this, Doesn't it? Yeah. Not a lot of people know how focused Nana Mahuta's parents were on claiming water for their tribal ownership.
4: Well, that's been a Tainui goal, I'm not yeah, she's Tiny, yeah. isn't it? Tai goal for a very, very long time. And she's multi-generational in that. Yeah. One of the interesting things about that comment is that I know you and I have spent a little bit of time looking at some of this treaty stuff over previous years uh, in another context. And one of the things that I learned, again, the fact that not all Māori were on the same page with this, I see very much two groups around the treaty, those who want to work in partnership and actually have all the positives that partnership bring uh, within a wider community context and looking after their own communities, taking it back to like a hapu level, which is the sort of family and the extended family groups. And it's about creating a partnership and within the treaty to actually be like a rising tide that lifts all waka. And then you have those that look at the treaty as a vehicle for power. I think that that's what you see with the likes of Jackson, Mahuta, that entire Māori caucus. There is definitely a a lust for power there. And sometimes I struggle to see where the benefits for their own people will be in this power, because it will be only often the ones sitting on the boards and having those direct accesses. It is quite interesting, you know, when we sit on marae, as both you and I have done. And we're and talking to people who are there, their opinion on things is quite different to what is painted in, in the media there and from a, an academic Māori level as opposed to a grassroots Māori level.
0: That school of thought which says, treaty uh, will never it'll never be settled so it's it's just something we're we're stuck with the, is the the constant living with the, this idea that we're an unjust country and it's never going to be solved I, I i think a lot of maori are, are tired of that and certainly older maori who've participated in treaty claims always talk about how much it took out of them mm. how much it took away from from their life and what really annoys me is that if Māori did less hackers and uh, more sums, they'd be more angry about the commitment that both national and labor have to borrowing a huge amount of money and sending it to nuclear-armed countries like India, China, Russia via the most corrupt financial markets in the world where 65 to 90% of transactions have been fraudulent. Uh, to have zero effect on the stated aim of lowering a trace gas that's uh, vital to our life. And if you think about how much we've torn ourselves to shreds arguing about the treaty, I've put this to politicians. I've never had any response, let alone a rebuttal. But I saw a listener article once where we a government department estimated that our um, Paris Accord commitments could cost $70 billion this decade. Now, that's 30 times the total treaty settlements. And why, And we're not even allowed to talk about it. We're not even allowed to... Uh, there was no mention of the fact that even the IPCC's uh, estimation of temperature rise had been downgraded.
4: It was five degrees, I think, and downgraded. Was it 2.5 or 1.5? I know, even Jeff, less
0: than that, it was downgraded. I know Don what and what Jess were all
4: over this, yeah.
0: New Zealand's policy settings are all predicated on the maximum projected rise, and they haven't been altered. Even though the IPCC, whose only purpose is to look for signs of of anthropogenic climate change, uh, has said, look, it's not as big a problem as, surprise, surprise, our computer models always say it is going to be. Heather DuPlessis-Allen was the most scathing about uh, the government. She talked about Kieran McEnulty honestly answering a question about it and said, for the first time in the history of Three Waters, the responsible ministry minister just told the truth no spin no semantics just yes and no do non-maori get the same level of say as maori in the three waters set up no they don't does he realize that's not strictly a one person one vote model yes it was refreshing and then it was alarming because it was a cabinet minister admitting that he was introducing a reform that he knew was undemocratic in a democracy and then it was even more alarming because he couldn't explain why at least not in a way that stood up to scrutiny.
4: And isn't it alarming that that is a journalist that hasn't actually realised that this government has been doing that for the last three years, introducing undemocratic legislation? She's kind of
0: tiptoed around the edges of uh, of talking about it, probably as much as any New Zealand mainstream. Can. O- outside mm-hmm. Leighton Smith, she says, talks about how it's not really scrutinised, um, saying Mc- McAnulty was supposed to make the Three Waters problem go away for Labour, not open new lines of attack. Luckily for him, though, he seems to be getting away. I guess that meant with it. There's been hardly anything more than a few squeaks of outrage. A generous explanation is that critics have been caught off guard. They weren't expecting this level of honesty, so they didn't know what to say next. A less less generous explanation is that they're afraid of the eternal threat of being labelled racists. So, yeah, here we are. It's, it's out in the open now that yeah giving them co-governance can't be because of property rights. It must be because of special political rights. This means they get more of a say than everyone else because they're more special. Opposition parties have another week of recess to gather their thoughts and iron out their arguments. They should already be pulling out M- McAnulty's inaccuracies and inconsistencies to question them in the House. It's not as if they're short on material. McAnulty was surprisingly frank and surprisingly wrong. So, yeah, that, that was the... The spectrum of of speech against it but again as as you said there's this meta-analysis of the news where we also see in the weekend herald jason momoa's um film canned because of a consultancy issue in at whangarei heads i think we're going to see a lot more of that this once the the power of veto uh is given it's going to be used It's the classic,
4: yeah, and it's also the classic cut off your nose to spite your face, isn't it? The other, in that that same edition in the Media Insider, uh, TVNZ's showdown, uh, Minister Wants Change, and of course the Minister of Broadcasting is uh, the Honourable Willie Jackson. Willie Jackson says, our identity goes beyond country calendar. TVNZ is in for a major shake-up, far beyond hiring a new CEO and chair, with Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson confirming he wants to see a stronger commitment From the state broadcaster to reflect the New Zealand identity, I want to see and hear a New Zealand identity and for me, despite what critics might be saying it's more than just about Māori. In a wide ranging interview, the Minister said he wants to see all the undeserved audiences, including Pacifica and younger Kiwis addressed. I love the live coverage of Te Matatini on TV2 in February and last weekend's TVNZ1 Sunday show, which profile books are me and moto. I don't see enough of that in prime time. I want to see that sort of stuff. I want to see some of the country stuff. Country calendar has been brilliant for New Zealand TV. I think our New Zealand identity with respect is much more than that now, says Jackson. They've been saying, oh, well, there's a New Zealand story, it's country calendar. I think it's wider than that. I think Kiwis are growing and this country has been changing. Well, yes, it has, Willie, but also in terms of, like, he's saying it needs to be more than Māori stuff. Is there not a publicly funded entire channel for Māori stuff?
0: Yeah. And, and is, there, is there a possibility we could just start thinking of, of Māori as, as humans, like New Zealanders. L- like everyone else, like and that everyone as else, such yeah. they've got more in common with us than they have different. Mm.
4: Uh, and also the other side, as you said, he wants to hear other voices of other New Zealanders out there. Well, I mean, part of the reason this channel was created is there's a whole bunch of New Zealanders out there that have been excluded from prime time as well, and they're wanting to have a voice. So the media landscape, I think, is ch- is is about to is set to change and it's not just locally it's internationally as well the merger didn't go ahead and i think it was the right thing that the merger didn't go ahead and we've seen already ructions in this country around the media landscape and i think that that is only going to continue it will be really interesting that once they've sort of shaken up all the or the dice where everything sort of lands um, over the wider spectrum.
0: I mean, he makes the comment that Radio New Zealand has been starved of opportunity because of a funding freeze for many years. A funding freeze won't affect us, will it?
4: No, no. And speaking of shake up internationally in media, the news drop yesterday of Fox dropping its biggest rating star, Tucker Carlson, that's huge.
0: Absolutely huge. And because almost all of New Zealand's international news comes from the most left-wing outlets in the States and in in, uh, the rest of the world, it's... Not on the radar of people unless they actually watch Tucker Carlson clips, although they're fairly common on Facebook. If you start watching them, they start popping up.
4: So, for those,
0: and I think a lot of our listeners
4: will know who Tucker Carlson is, but just in case you don't, Tucker Carlson has been with Fox for a number of years. He's also done the Traps Around magazine. He worked for CNN for a time. He has a nightly show on weekdays uh, called Tucker Carlson Tonight, and then he also has a long format interview show a couple of times a week called Tucker Carlson Today. And I have to say, if you have a VPN and you are able to access those interviews, they really are very, very good. He is very outspoken on a number of issues. Uh, He is... Tenacious and he is dogmatic, and if he gets his teeth into something, he will not let it go, and he will literally shake that thing to death until he gets to where he needs to be. Uh, an example of that has been the January six riots in, um, or insurrection, depending on what media you listen to in the USA after the um, just prior to the inauguration of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, the laptop story with Hunter Biden is another. All things COVID, but the big one was the election the 2020 election and he brought up questions around their digital voting machines of which the company who has those machines took fox to court and they just this last week settled out of court it will be interesting to see the speculation that's already started the dancing on his grave has already started on the alternative media on this uh, but this is massive. This is somebody who has a very when you've got a station like Fox, who quite open about their partisanship, right? So they don't pretend to be neutral. They're open about their partisanship, and they say this is where we sit. We sit to the right of centre, and then they're unashamed about that, which in a way is refreshing. But they are one of the few, and in fact, the only large broadcaster in mainstream in the USA that sits in that place. So because they command that space, they can, and they're not fractionated like the opposing side, you have a huge concentration of viewers in that place. Tucker Carlson is at the top of that heap. The nice thing I think now is that there are, unlike five years ago, there are parallel media that have been created and not only survived but thrived because of the lack of diversity in the media space like blaze tv with dave rubin like the daily wire with ben shapiro uh spotify was brave and brought rogan on and look at what a colossus that is even rumble now has really taken off as an alternative to youtube with people like majid nawaz and others uh, with shows across there tucker carlson i think there is the ability now for him to really stretch out and break free from those uh, shackles of a network. And it will be interesting to see what happens.
0: His interview last week with Elon Musk was really interesting about AI. You know, that, that's something that the coverage in New Zealand's media is really not doing it justice. Without questioning it, they'll listen to Jacinda Ardern talk about, well, we've got to be cautious with AI. And they won't say, well, hang on, in 2019, you signed us up to that World Economic Forum pilot project about using AI to write government policy. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk raised uh, the specter that it's already getting toyed with. So if you say, ask about any anything about race or politics, it's all great for Joe Biden. It's all bad for Trump they've already started tinkering with it. And, he, and, and one of the really interesting things was Elon Musk was talking uh, about a conversation he had with, I think it's Cinder uh, Pichar, who's the CEO of Google. He, he said, you know, I, I don't, I think ultimately this could be really dangerous for human, the human population. And he said the guy called him um, species or a speciesist that he was favoring humans over other species. Wow. That's a frightening insight.
4: Isn't it, just... Um And so,
0: yeah, there was there was a um, there was a uh, there was an article in Monday's uh, New Zealand Herald where correspondent Matt Heath had a toy around with Chat GP and got it to write ten commandments, and they sounded pretty good. And he said, with AI-generated commandments like this, I was feeling good about the future of humanity. Maybe it would be better to have robots take over sooner rather than later. Then it struck me this is BS. G P is just telling me what I want to hear. It doesn't have beliefs. It simply generated a reflection of my input. And if you contrast that with Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson saying, well, no, it's actually been hijacked by very left-leaning programmers to say what they think you should hear, it becomes even more sinister.
4: Isn't this a song that we've heard before? The Social Dilemma that was out on Netflix a few years back, one of the programmers there, and he talked about how the algorithms that were used by the likes of Google and YouTube and Facebook to keep engagement going with people to stay within those platforms was being used to send them down different pathways. And we know that in 2016, the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Trump, which seems to be popped in a memory hole way back then Trump used that to his advantage to help him get elected in 2016 once the left cotton on to what that went on they then I think have taken that all that data and information and they've used it to send their messages out to the world chat GP seems to for me feels like an extension of all of that does it not it's just taking that to the next level from an AI perspective
0: yeah I mean if you look at all of it if you look at the algorithms training people to say things and achieving that with enough of a population that you can vote governments that are friendly to that way of thinking, you know, maybe that's what's happening with uh, Klaus Schwab and Jacinda Ardern and Chris Hipkins' pilot project for um, for AI. You know, it's, maybe that's what it's doing. Yeah, the frustration of, of being a person who studied history and has to watch everyone else repeat it. Mm-hmm. And, and I guess, you know, we should start, uh, extending some tendrils of what do we do in all this? Because it's quite disempowering to to talk about all this. And the solution is well, people have got to get together, and they've got to um, stop arguing with crazy people. It just sucks energy, and and they're not interested in logic. You know, people always act as if people are driving this kind of everything's racist or misogynistic or or transphobic. You know, are actually interested in in discussion. They're not. They're interested in crushing discussion, Hmm. as that 70-year-old woman found out from the 20-year-old war hero.
4: It's interesting you should say that, because Carlson did a speech on the weekend, and it was at, I think, the 50th anniversary of the the Heritage Society, and the speech was pretty incredible. I, I get the feeling that he already knew that he was... Leaving Fox because it felt exceptionally open, even right. for him. I didn't
0: get a chance to get to that, but I'll, I'm looking forward to listening yeah. to
4: it. And he just, at that point you just made about the crushing of ideas and the crushing of civilization, was one of the themes that was in that speech. And it was incredibly powerful. But it's again, you've got to look at the positives. I just spoke to Katie um, Hopkins before, and she talked about you've got to find the positive in the little things and whether that positive be. Um, saying to a young man that helped somebody, an older person having an issue, getting on an escalator, coming up and saying that was a really good thing that you did or doing something positive yourself. I think that we've got to take everything back to a community level because those messages that are coming out now, the the gaslighting that is going on within the media level is absolutely incredible. Actually, the Curia poll, did you see David Farrar's Curia poll yeah. on media bias that I thought was really interesting as I mentioned before Fox as a broadcaster has always been open about where they sit TVNZ I think sat at something like plus 15 uh the perception of people is plus 15 that they lean to the left Whereas if you were to talk to T V and say, where are you? He say, no, we are the moderate voice of the nation. Interestingly enough, the Herald actually came out from a print perspective pretty good. They, from a perception point of view, they sat in the middle.
0: Well, it's probably because of the business section and, you know, mm. the people who are tucked at the back of the paper. Mm. As I said, Heather Duplessis, allen John Rowan, you know, they, they do Steven Stephen run. Joyce. Stephen Joyce. Peter Dunn, um, yeah, they're there. But yeah, I mean, you know, the whole left-right thing as well infuriates me because again you've given this well you know if you go that way do we get to hitler and if we go that way do we get to stalin absolutely not they're they're in kind of the same direction i I think at this point the way i think of it is left wing is you want bigger government and less freedom and right wing is you want smaller government and more freedom and by that definition I'm right-wing, and you know what? I think the majority of New Zealanders are too. If you teased it out of them, you know, if they actually were able to um, to assess facts as the media should really be presenting them. But as as I said, this media is kind of like a town square for the, for government and its toadies. Yeah, they're not they're not doing that job, and that's incredibly dangerous because. As I've said before, you know, we're we're not arguing our point of view necessarily as primary focus. It's it's that we should have the argument and there should be someone on each side providing their their side of the argument so people can make up their minds. When that's taken away, it's a very dangerous place. And and you can see all of these bright-eyed young socialists like Hipkins, like Ardern, and they they've got this that patronizing idea that if people don't agree with them it's just because they haven't PR'd it right rather than actually facing the fact that they're hopelessly inexperienced they don't really know how the world works Uh, they've been flattered by people who are using them as middle management drive an agenda that's really not that good for most people
4: no not at all now education we do like to say something on education each week have you got anything
0: well, yeah, there, there wasn't there wasn't a, a whole lot on education. There was an article in the Sunday Star Times about teachers being tired of being political footballs. Again, it's it's kind of hard to pick any outrage out of it about the failure of the education system. They're just basically saying don't keep swapping things on us. Uh, you, you've got Education Minister Jan Tinetti. She was already on board with a bipartisan approach we know there is more to do which is why we need the understanding of exactly where the challenges exist across the sector i welcome national and other parties to this conversation tenetti said national education spokesman the lovely erica stanford i just put the lovely in there because i think she's awesome as far as national goes said she would also welcome a bipartisan approach to education although she said it needed to start with the government Labour has failed to give National any input into significant changes to the curriculum or NCEA over the recent years, and we have been left completely in the dark, she said. That's a recurring pattern with Labour. They also said they were going to consult with people who are running charter schools before they closed them down virtually on their first day of office. But if you listen to Alwyn Poole, they were impossible to get hold of, and they really didn't want to do any of that.
4: But that's okay. they're clear and transparent, it's fine.
0: There was a long interview with the Vice-Chancellor of AUT, and he made some good points about getting people into education who normally wouldn't. He said, if you're a six foot seven kid, it didn't matter where you were, the Rugby Scouts would find you, right? He says, if you are a brainy kid, if you're mathematically gifted or you have a facility with chemistry or physics, we won't find you. We need an education system that makes sure every single talented person reaches their full potential. Again, you're not going to do that if you're squashing down the pe- kids who are best at maths because you're worried that that disparity in ability is driving inequity. He's married to Labour MP Jenny Salisa. So it's, a, yeah, it's kind of a club.
4: A club, though, it's interesting that he is talking about that in terms of bringing people into education, because, of course, this is an issue at the moment, that enrollments are significantly down. I think over 650 full-time enrollments have uh, been cited as the reason for mass layoffs at Otago University, and the call for voluntary redundancies has been uh, started this week, and they are looking at absolutely slashing staff And Victoria University has also indicated that they are not ruling out the potential of a restructure as well. So it's interesting that our tertiary institutions are facing this and it is a chicken and egg, isn't it? Is it it because we're not putting out students capable enough to have the rigor within tertiary education, they're leaving our high schooling system completely ill-equipped? Or are they seeing that the value and the cost of that education is now no longer there and they're better off to actually walking straight out of high school into a trade-based on-job learning environment and actually earning as they're learning? What do you yeah. think?
0: I struggle to advise a young man because young men are the most failed by the education system. 50% more women than men go on to tertiary education, so... If it was the other way around, of course, it would uh, be a sign of all sorts of things. But um, because it's young men, there is actually, so you get some academics actually saying, well, it's a it's a welcome rebalance, that ed- education's failing men because it helps with equity. I, I really struggle to advise any any young person to take on, unless they're really specific about what they're doing, they want to be a doctor or they want to be a nurse, which you don't do at university anyway, but um, struggle to advise them to take on 100 grand of debt. Um, because if you're in a foot race with a kid who's doing, um, say, an engineering apprenticeship and they're earning, say, over the course of their apprenticeship, which might be three or four years, three years, so, they'll earn a 100 grand. So already they're $200,000 apart. And then once you're out of university, you're not earning what a qualified engineer's earning for a good three or four years. And if someone's intelligent going into that in that, in that time, use those skills to create a business or um, get into a high paying job somewhere else so it took me about five years after finishing school to get my curiosity back i think the right thing for a young man to do is get a trade maybe a bit later in life when they found uh, what they're really passionate about study that
4: well i want to finish off on something completely frivolous and positive oh good Yes, and I know it's something that doesn't really interest you, but I saw it and I just thought you've got to have some good news. And this week, Wrexham FC, an English football league club after a 15 year absence uh, from the National League, has won their bid to re-enter the National League. Now, why on earth would I be interested in something like that, you ask? Well, I'm interested because the Welsh Club is owned by actors Ryan Riddles and um, Rob McElnay, and they purchased the club on a bit of a wheeze, I think. There is, I think, a whole sort of TV series that goes along with this. I think they did it as a bit of a, a, bit of a joke and a, an ability to create a little bit of content. But obviously, what they've gone and done by buying this club and giving that, I think, sense of hope in all of those things there, that this club, because it was on the absolute verge of folding, uh, it's three times they reached that promotion relegation zone to re-enter and they weren't able to. And then they were able to do it this time round. And if you do look it up, the scenes on it are really quite amazing. And it's, I mean, there is so a film here, but it is certainly a real feel-good moment just to show that something positive can actually happen. well you've got some feedback for us we'd love to hear from you inbox at realitycheck.radio that's inbox at realitycheck.radio you can also uh send us a text uh to forty forty. then put rcr before your message and then type your message in and we get to see that as well Uh, particularly if there's something that you'd like us to cover or you've got something that you'd like to say Uh, so do definitely do that so thank you very much marty greatly appreciated as always
0: Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much, Marie. Thanks as, for asking me as always. And um, yeah, I look forward to hearing that feedback. Have we been called racist yet?
4: Uh, no, but um, I know we have not been called racist. Well, not that I'm aware of. Not
0: we're not doing our job.
4: Maybe. we're Well, maybe not. Maybe not. No, so far the feedback has been overwhelmingly positive uh, and we do appreciate that. So thank you. To have you. a great yeah. week. Have a great week to you too. More still to come here on Reality Check Radio. Stay tuned, the Vocabulary Word of the Week is up next.
5: It's time for the Vocabulary Word of the Week.
4: The Vocabulary are words and phrases that have been hijacked by those who are steeped in the world of critical social justice. So what's hiding amongst the smoke and mirrors this week? cancel culture cancel culture is a phrase contemporary to the late 2010s and early 2020s used to refer to a culture in which those who are deemed to have acted or spoken in an unacceptable manner are ostracized boycotted or shunned This shunning may extend to social or professional circles whether on social media or in person most high profile incidents involve celebrities but it can happen to anyone who has broken the social rules the protection of reputation is nothing new socially it is one of the constraints vital to functioning civilized societies however the weaponization of social media especially by those steeped deep in the social justice ideology have allowed council culture to develop a life of its own and those wielding it have done so with no thought of greater social financial or personal implications however Cancel culture only works when there is nowhere else for its victims to go. In recent years, parallel structures in business, media, science, and socially, have allowed the shun to find a place to continue their work, survive, and thrive. Quiet, and not so quiet, think the Bud Light boycott, commercial consumer cancelling is signalling to corporations that go woke or go broke does in fact exist. So whether you're someone like J.K. Rowling, Katie Hopkins, or even now Tucker Carlson, cancellation may not be the end, but in fact, a new beginning.
3: It might be time to start to reassess the terms we use to, to describe what we're watching. So when I started at Heritage, the presumption was, and this is a very Anglo-American assumption, that the debates we're having are kind of rational debates about the way to get to mutually agreed upon outcomes. Right? So like we all want the country to be more prosperous and free and people to be less oppressed or whatever. And so we're gonna argue about tax rates and I think higher tax gets, gets us there. I'm a Keynesian and you disagree, you're an Austrian or whatever. But the objective is the same. And so we write our papers and they write their papers and may the best papers win. I, I, I don't think that's what we're watching now at all. I don't think we're watching a debate over how to get to the best outcome. I think that's completely wrong. And I've come to this conclusion not, and I should say at the outset, I'm an Episcopalian, so don't take any theological advice from me because I don't have any. I grew up in the foul, shallowest faith tradition that's ever been invented. It's not even a Christian religion at this point. Um, I say with shame. But I'm just saying this as an observer of what's going on. There is no way to assess, say, the transgenderist movement with that mindset. Policy papers don't account for it at all. If you have people who are saying, I have an idea, let's castrate the next generation. Let's sexually mutilate children. I'm sorry, that's not a political debate. What? It has nothing to do with politics. What's the outcome we're desiring here? An androgynous population? Is that really what we are we arguing for that? I don't, I, I don't think anyone could like, defend that as a positive outcome. But the weight of the government and uh, you know, a lot of corporate interests are behind that. Well, what is that? Well, it's irrational. If you say, well, you know, I think abortion is always bad. Well, I think sometimes it's necessary. That's a debate I'm familiar with. But if you're telling me that abortion is a positive good, what are you saying? Well, you're arguing for child sacrifice, obviously. It's not about, like, oh, a teen, you know, a teen girl gets pregnant, and what do we do about that, and victims of rape. I, you know, I get it. I, of course I understand that, and I have compassion for everyone involved. But when the Treasury Secretary stands up and says, you know what you can do to help the economy get an abortion? Well, that's like an Aztec principle, actually. There's not a society in history that didn't practice human sacrifice. Not one. I checked. Even the Scandinavians, I'm ashamed to say. It wasn't just the Mesoamericans. It was everybody. So, like, that's what that is. What's the point of child sacrifice? Well, there's no policy goal entwined with that. No, that's a theological phenomenon. And that's kind of the point I'm making. None of this makes sense in conventional political terms. When people, or crowds of people, or the largest crowd of people at all, which is the federal government, the largest human organization in human history, decide that the goal is to destroy things, destruction for its own sake. Hey, let's tear it down. What you're watching is not a political movement, it's evil, so if you want to assess, and I'll put it in non, and I'll stop with this, I'll put it in, non, poli- I'll put it in non-political, uh, or non, rather non-specific theological terms, and just say, if you want to know what's evil and what's good, what are the characteristics of those? And by the way, you know, I, I think the Athenians would have agreed with this. This is not necessarily just a Christian notion, this is kind of a, I would say, widely agreed upon understanding of good and evil. What are its products? What do these two conditions produce? Well, I mean, good is characterized by order, calmness, tranquility, peace, whatever you want to call it, lack of conflict, cleanliness. Cleanliness is next to godliness. It's true, it is. And evil is characterized by their opposites. Violence, hate, disorder, division, disorganization, and filth. So if you are all in on the things that produce the latter basket of outcomes, what you're really advocating for is evil. That's just true. I'm not calling for a religious war, far from it. I'm merely calling for an acknowledgement of what we're watching, which is not what and I'm not certainly not backing the Republican Party. I mean Ugh. I'm not making a partisan point at all. I'm, I'm just noting what's super obvious. Like those of us who are in our mid-50s are caught in the past in the way that we think about this. One side's like, no, 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 you know, I've got this idea and we've got this idea and let's have a debate about our ideas. They don't want a debate. Those ideas won't produce outcomes that any rational person would want under any circumstances those are manifestations of some larger force acting upon us. It's just so obvious. It's completely obvious. And I think two things. One, we should say that and stop engaging in these totally fraudulent debates where we are using the terms that we used in 1991 when I started at Heritage, as if maybe, you know, I could just win the debate if I marshaled more facts. I've tried that, doesn't work. And two, maybe we should all take just like 10 minutes a day to say a prayer about it. I'm serious, like why not? And I'm saying that to you, not as some kind of evangelist, I'm literally saying that to you as an Episcopalian. The Samaritans of our time. I'm coming to you from the most humble and lowly theological position you can. I'm literally an Episcopalian, okay? And even I have concluded it might be worth taking just 10 minutes out of your busy schedule to say a prayer for the future, and I hope you will. You're
5: listening to Counterculture on RCR.
1: Reality check radio
4: thank you for joining me this week on counterculture I look forward to bringing you more great interviews and opinion next week and keep that feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text 4040 and then type RCR followed by your comment Peter Williams is up next
3: you've been listening to counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR reality check radio. Committed to
2: fair debate and honest information, the Reality Check has arrived. RCR, Reality Check Radio.